well, not that they're holy because they're not religious, but like they're, they're, <laughs> they're the holiest of holy areas to go to for a dwarf. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. the holiest hole that they have. <laughs> Now I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Fifth Elephant, or as I like to call it, Sybil Disobedience. <laughs> and our returning guest is comedian Richard McKenzie. Welcome back, Richard. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. It's nice to have you back. It's been, I don't know, like 30 episodes? 35 episodes. 35, I was on the fifth episode doing... Oh, I can't believe it. Doing Pyramids. Yeah, so long ago. Yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, I brought jelly babies, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think anything significant has happened in between. Um, you know, our lives have just continued on as normal. It's been completely the same ever yeah. since. I can't, nothing, nothing springs to mind. What have you been doing with yourself, Richard, since we saw you last? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, much like everyone, everything... Went very, very weird this last year or so. But yeah, I've just been playing a lot of video games. Look, to be honest, if you asked me before the pandemic, uh, what do you like to do? It was play video games, play Dungeons and Dragons, play Magic the Gathering, uh, read books, you know, just that sort of stuff. And it's been exactly the same. <laughs> You've just had more time for those. I've things, had more fact. time. And like, Less work. It's been amazing. You know, I think of you every time someone mentions Magic the Gathering because of that time you told me about this card combination you came up with, which I can't remember because I'm mm. not familiar with Magic the Gathering, but that basically traps people in this infinite loop where they just can't get out of it and they eventually just lose as you drain them of life. So, I play, so if I start playing, I'm going to have to get that combination off you so that I win yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I guess that's how it works. I, I do know the deck that you're talking about and I, and I was allowed to play it once with my playgroup. And they said, never again. Uh, <laughs> you're not allowed to play with this if you play it again. I go, that's fair enough. It is an asshole thing to do. We've just got a no dickhead policy with the decks that we make. I mean, you can, you can try and win the game, but don't be a dick about it. That's yeah, I'm, I'm a Scrabble dickhead, so like, I, I feel that. I have never played Scrabble with Liz listeners, and I never will. No, I probably will at some point. Not until we finish the podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. We don't yeah. want a Monopoly-level incident. That's all right. Look, let's get into the book, though, because it is a long book. It's one of his longer ones. Like, my paperback copy is about 450 pages long, which is uh, that's pretty long. Um, 460, nearly, in fact. Actually, 460, exactly. Amazing. That's a fairly long book. Yeah. In the industry, that's called a hefty boy. A hefty. <laughs> that's the official book industry term. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's get into it. We'll start with a reading of the blurb. Sam Vimes is a man on the run. Yesterday, he was a duke, a chief of police, and the ambassador to the mysterious fat-rich country of Uberwald. 
Now he has nothing but his native wit and the gloomy trousers of Uncle Vanya, but don't ask. It's snowing, it's freezing, and if he can't make it through the forest to civilization, there's going to be a terrible war. But there are monsters on his trail. They're bright. They're fast. They're werewolves. And they're catching up. The Fifth Elephant is Terry Pratchett's latest instalment in the Discworld cycle, this time starring dwarfs, diplomacy, intrigue, and big lumps of fat. I quite, I quite like that, because the fat comes back every now and then in the book. But I just went long periods forgetting that that was the whole thing about Ubervold, is that, you know, they mine fat there. Like, it's basically almost the crux of the entire book. It kind of is, yeah. I mean, it's the whole reason that, you know, people are interested in the place. Do you think that's why there's so many fat jokes about the guy who owns the restaurant at the beginning, or is that just because he enjoys a good fat joke? I think he just likes a good fat joke. Thankfully, they're the only ones. Yeah, I think he enjoys a good visual joke, like written down, especially when he's describing trolls and that sort of stuff. It's always like he was a wall with eyes, you know, like there's just these big descriptors of these larger-than-life characters. And, yeah, all Jolson does cop that as a fat joke, yeah. Speaking of the visual jokes, like there's a whole scene where like everyone's doing semaphore, which in a normal book you wouldn't describe for so long, but it, it gets like a page and a half and it's very funny. So, yeah. 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 In a normal book. I mean, what? <laughs> we don't discuss normal books on this podcast. Well, I think normal books could do with a whole lot more semaphore, honestly. That's reasonable. Mm. That's reasonable. Um, I do like the start. We, we get a bit of this. It's not quite, it's not cosmic turtle stuff. Liz, it's Cosmic Elephant. Are mm. you okay with that? Yeah, it was a lot less tedious than some of the other openings where it's just like, and then he blinked, and then he thought, and then he saw, and then it was. Like, it's, mm. there's some stuff actually happening. <laughs> it, it always confused me, though, with the fifth elephant. How did it come to... Does, so does the fifth elephant break off from underneath the, the turtle and yeah. then in an orbit come around and smash in? Yeah, that's the idea. So, there so used to be five holding the disc up, but yeah. one of them slipped and fell off, but then sort of looped around in an orbit and then smashed into the disc yeah. on top. So, was that the, like the middle elephant? So, there's like four on the corners and this, the fifth elephant was in the middle and it sort of... I don't know. Maybe they were arranged like, you know, five points of a star, but then when they lost one, they had to shuffle around <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to redistribute the weight evenly. Surely that would also cause like a bunch of trauma as well if the four elephants are shuffling around, moving things around. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's it's kind of cool because it's like a story to explain, you know, the breakup of the continent on yeah. the disc, and and it, it's you know it's that kind of cool origin story that might be true because of where it's happening. So who knows? But I I kind of feel like there was enough going on with the smashing into the top that no one would have noticed the elephants moving around a bit. And I guess yeah. it would have been like primordial soup times. Yes. True. Yes. If they have that, it's probably like a primordial, like, I don't know, pie. Well. Did they say maybe trolls were around for that? Yeah, so maybe not quite that early, because they did say that the trolls had been around so long that some of the earliest trolls might have been there to see it. Oh, like the dinosaur killing event kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. but they're trolls, so they don't die. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, an asteroid. That's It's like our uncle coming to visit. <laughs> Gloomy Uncle Vanya, the troll. But less chaotic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but we get that story, the fifth elephant. And that's supposedly where all the fat comes from. 
which again could be the truth or maybe there were just a lot of animals buried under there. Not that they would turn to fat. That's not really quite how it works. But it's interesting that this is where Pratchett's gone. Like, we know that in that he never gets to, like, internal combustion engines. But, you know, in Raising Steam, the second last one, we start getting steam trains. Yeah. But we never find an equivalent to oil, or at least not that kind of crude oil that you turn into petroleum on the disc. But instead, we get fat. Mm. Um, which is very much, you know, it's in that there's an old gag about treacle mines. Mm-hmm. It's in one of the other books that we've already discussed. And now we've got the fat equivalent. And I think it does come up in this one at some I point. I think there's a side note on it, yeah. But no, I think you're right. I think it's 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 about as close as we ever get to, like, oil reserves. Because they do make it out that it is far more important than iron or gold or silver or anything else that they're pulling out of the mountains. Like, this is vital, especially when Vetinari says, like, it's vital to Ankh-Morpork moving forward. It's a bit of a crude comparison, but, I mean... <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. oh, no. Oh. It's too early in the podcast, Liz. Uh, you, but you, you got us. You got us. That was good. Is it really. too early in the podcast to talk about sonkies? Uh, no, we're going to get there quite Never. quickly. Um, mm. But look, I, I, we do need to talk about the state of the watch, I think, because it's been a while since we talked about a watch book. The last one we talked about was Jingo, and that's quite a few episodes ago now. So we're back here in Ankh-Morpork. The watch has moved with the times, and Ankh-Morpork indeed has moved with the times. Quite appropriately, things we recently read going postal where the clacks are very, very important. This is the book that introduces us to the clacks, uh, which are little semaphore towers all over the place. It does seem like some of them are only for watch use. Is that how you read that bit, or are they just using coded signals? I wasn't it 100% sure. It's kind of like police boxes, like back in the day, like there were like specific ones, mm. but there were other ones because it was like people rushing out of restaurants to check their messages on the latest poll. So it was like, there's a lot of them, it seems like, but maybe there are private police ones only for police business. Yeah, I got I yeah. got the feeling that that was the case. Um, but there's also the clacks, which is the, the public use one. Yeah, I felt like there was, uh, it was almost like using for, you know, for us, like, you know, maybe WhatsApp. Or Telegram, like you know, it was encrypted. So, mm. like when you became a copper, you learned the semaphore for that, so that even if someone else was watching, they wouldn't know exactly what was going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you not- wanted them to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's not their only innovation. Uh, they also now have a traffic division, which is headed up mm-hmm. by Fred Colland, which consists of getting imps to act as speed cameras. Yep. And also that they clamp the wheels of wagons that park too long. And actually, not this just is, wagons. Well, not just wagons. That's true. They do. <laughs> they do clamp a few trolls <laughs> during this book and some buildings. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. They cl- very cultural buildings. Opera house, right? <laughs> oh, so silly, but great. Very funny. And this actually reminded me. I've been watching. We won't talk about it a lot here because we'll probably do a bonus episode and talk about it at some point. But uh, I have been watching the Watch TV series, and they do have. Um, they do have, uh, like, imps as security cameras in that. It's like painting lots of pictures very quickly. Um, so it's a bit like that. Uh, and it's clearly inspired by this stuff in this book, I think. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the, the watch, the TV show. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's, me too. It's, yeah, clearly inspired by Pratchett. Oh, yeah, it's like a totally its own thing. But yeah. anyway, we, we won't get into that too yeah. much because we, we know that's not why you've come, listeners. But yeah, so there's, that's going on. And we meet Fred on his rounds, uh, you know, organizing the speed camera imps and, um, talking to the trolls about unclamping somebody. Um, 
and uh, he learns uh, of a robbery recently after a meat delivery, um, or a robbery of of meat anyway. Uh, but he doesn't know what that's about. This is a, this is a minor clue of of something that happens, but Fred never finds out what it's about. I don't <laughs> it's think. Meat cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. And then we we cut over to Vimes and Carrot, who are hanging out in town, um, just sort of checking things out. There's a fire at the Fool's Guild and a lot of nonsense while they fail to put it out. But also there's a lot of argy-bargy going on with the dwarves in Ankhmore Pork. I'm sorry, dwarfs. I always want to say dwarves, but Pratchett is very particular that it's dwarfs. Just calm down, Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of unrest that Carrot doesn't want to talk about. But when they go to see the patrician... He reveals there's a whole big thing happening in dwarf society. They're about to crown a new low king of the dwarves in Uberwald, where the sort of seat of dwarven power is. And there's a lot of back and forth of the dwarf community about who should be the rightful king. Apparently, it's, it's not really an election, is it? Or is it sort of an election? It kind of feels like primaries with no election. You know how like the party chooses who can go up for election, but then you don't actually get to vote after that? It felt like the pre-stages of an election. Yeah. Or like how you choose a pope, like a conclave almost. Yeah, but the the general dwarf population does seem to get a say in it. Yeah, it wasn't I I felt like the dwarfs of Ang Morpork sort of skewed things one way mm-hmm. rather than the traditional dwarves back in Overvold. Yeah, so maybe it's like you unofficially elect, like, your senators and then they vote, so, like... Well, maybe they've got, like, uh, some sort of college electorate sort of thing where certain areas hold more votes than others, and so mm-hmm. and you don't get the popular vote, but you do get the popular well, vote, but you win <laughs> with college electorate votes. Yeah, well, hmm. I'm see- it seems like, looking over my notes, it's each head of a clan gets to have a vote, but they vote for who their dwarves want them to vote for rather than just deciding on their own. So right. that was kind of like the senator thing. Yeah, the parliament votes is like passing a bill, perhaps. I, I was shrugging for the for the sound <laughs> of it all. <laughs> just listeners, just you can't see what we can see, but it, it's kind of cool, and I I like the setup. Like it is a different sort of political scenario, but it is quite fraught because the low king elect who has not yet been invested, they have to sit on the scone of stone. More about in a moment. They have not yet been crowned. And some people are uneasy because the person who has been selected is kind of the liberal choice rather than the conservative old-fashioned choice. I love that we later learn that uh, Reese Reeson, who is the king in question, comes from a tiny little mining town in Lamados. So it's basically like, you know, some minor dwarf person. Minor from, dwarf. A minor dwarf. <laughs> uh, not from any of the big places that we know about where dwarves come from. But it also, I, I like that because it really shows us that there are dwarves everywhere on the disc, which is kind of nice. And just like the least controversial choice, like he offended the least number of people and that's why he won. Yeah. Good work, Reese. <laughs> just slide it on through. Yeah. yeah. But this is an important event and everybody's sending ambassadors to attend it. Uh, not just because, you know, you should be there, but also because everybody's now paying attention to Uberwald because they want a slice of the fat. Um, a scoop of the fat. A sco- yeah, that's more appropriate, isn't it? Mm. It's interesting because, you know, this is, they're talking about fat in a way that we don't really use it, certainly not in Australia anymore, to cook with directly. 
Um, I mean, well, I don't. I'm a vegetarian, but you know, Richard, you you're a, a big cooker of of meats and fancy meat dishes. Do mm-hmm. you use a lot of sort of rendered fat and stuff like that? Oh yeah, like I uh, I will actually do a lot of cooking and then render the fat out from meats that I've cooked and then s- sieve it away and store it away so I can use it later on. Oh wow. Yeah, so like so I can flavor different dishes later on with meats that I've used before. If someone said, "Here's a jar of fat that I mined out of the earth." Would you use that for your cooking? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm I mean, if they, were, if they were three feet tall and had an axe, I'd probably say yes. <laughs> but would you actually use it or would you just be like, I'll, you know, I'll use it. It's okay. Oh, look, I've done a lot of dubious things in my life and eating fat that some stranger gave me is probably like halfway. Like it's not even, not even like a blip on the radar. <laughs> I mean, you're cooking it. Like that's that's pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all fine. It's all, it's all good. It's all, it's all just fat. Mm, and, and, fair. and you can make some soap out of it, or you make some candles. You know, but it's all fine. It's great. It used to be called dripping. Is that like the same thing as dripping? Yeah, yeah. It's a type of fat, isn't it? Or is that a, is that a specific thing? Or is it? Oh, I think it's same, same, but different. Like you know, I think it's probably just mm-hmm. a generational thing where, like you know, you would take the drippings from like if you were doing a roast. Uh, and then you would use your bread to sop that up and you would use that as like a, a flavorful thing for your bread. Whereas like probably, I'll probably be back then. They would probably use a lot of, uh, holdover fat and stuff. So they would, you know, wouldn't have to buy lard or, or, or ghee or anything like that for later, mm. um, for later cooking. Yeah. I'm very mm. economical. Yeah. And everything good. I cook tastes like bacon now. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Yeah, look, you know, I I won't lie, I I miss it. I miss the taste of bacon. It is delicious. Oh yeah, you um, can't eat anything things. out of the pan at my house, Ben. <laughs> no, never. I can't. I'd be, I, have a, I feel I like have a vegan it, recipe for you though, Ben. That does taste like bacon. So we'll talk about that after the podcast. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. need that. I need that. Yeah. We might put it in the show notes because no doubt people will want to know. Um, well, it involves smoked paprika and soy sauce and from tofu. Okay, I'm I'm into it. I'm going to try mm. that definitely. But look, the reason that Vetinari is talking to Vimes and Carrot about the investiture of the new Low King is that, yes, everyone's got to send an ambassador, and he wants to send Vimes in his role as the Duke of Ankh. And Vimes is not keen on this, but eventually accepts that it's going to happen, whether he's keen on it or not. Yeah, Vimes is never keen um, on anything. Like, no. Like, if he, if he, <laughs> I always feel like reading the books, like, you know, and maybe this is just obvious to everyone as well, but like... Vimes feels like everything has just gotten away from him. Like, like he just wants to, like, you know, have a nice fry up, you know, stand on a street corner, have his cigar, make sure no ne'er do wells are, like, you know, doing anything bad, and then just go home to Sybil. Like, that's all he wants. But then yeah. now he's got to do other stuff. Like, you know, people yeah. are, you know, giving him extra duties and, or veterinarians. And he's just going, I, I don't, I don't want to. Yeah. I do like there's a couple of moments in this book where he admits to himself that he does enjoy some of the privileges that he now has. Hmm. Like the fact that when he goes to an inn, Willikens and this other servants will go ahead and make sure it's all prepared just how he likes it. He's like, oh, that is quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> he's only human. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we'd all enjoy that. Uh, but look, he's he's a bit sort of like, what is this all about? What does it mean? And so Carrot takes him to the Dwarf Bread Museum, which it seems like I think in every book that Carrot's in, he finds an excuse to go to the Dwarf Bread Museum. And now <laughs> I want to go to a Dwarf Bread Museum. 
but they go to see, in particular, a replica of the Scone of Stone or the Scone of Stone. I have an internal conflict because How the rhyme say it? Yeah. would be nice, but I believe that you should say Scone, not Scone. Yes, I'm exactly with you, Ben. Like it I'm is, with you too. It is the Scone of Stone. Yes. The Scone versus Scone debate has raged for decades, but the division is more geographic than class-based. It was already in full swing by 1975 when it appeared in the British TV comedy The Goodies. In the episode Bun Fight at the OK Tea Rooms, a Western parody, the three main characters go mining for gold in Cornwall, but instead strike Cornish cream, and eventually jam and scones as well. This sparks a bit of feud which ends hilariously. Now, while I do love the goodies, having watched it growing up, I'll caution modern viewers that as a product of its time, it sometimes contains stuff that really isn't okay. But this particular episode is great silly fun. And not the Stone of Scone, which, which is a real thing. Which is a real thing. It's a Scottish thing. Yeah. Mm. Which we, I don't know if we talked about this when you were on last time, but mm. we, while we are not closely related, we're probably very distantly related, as all Mackenzies presumably are. Mm-hmm. But your your Mackenzies are Scottish Mackenzies, aren't they? We are Scottish Mackenzies, yes. Whereas I, mine are Irish Mackenzies. And so, do you know about the Stone of Scone? Kind, you know, obviously, having read this book, and I went, "Oh, that's a, that's a Scottish thing." Okay, and I read up about it a little bit. I couldn't tell you the ins and outs of. How it pertains to like, you know, nobility and, and, and how it all came to pass. Like all I really know about the Scottish Mackenzies is that, um, I actually went to Scotland when I was very young with my family and we stayed at this castle, which was like, you know, the Mackenzie Castle. And it was out in the middle of the lake. Uh, and if you were able to show your passport and show that you had Mackenzie on your passport, uh, you got a little special tour because you're a Mackenzie. So you got to go to extra bits of the castle that the, the, the other public didn't get to go to. Um, and wow. yeah, it was great. Now I, now I want to go. Yeah. And so, and we went through and, and so, and they were telling us about how the Mackenzie used to own huge areas of land in Scotland. Like they were just massive landowners. Um, uh, and then we drank and gambled it all away. And now this is this one castle in the middle of a lake. I mean, yeah, that's, that's all we've got left. <laughs> oh, this is a sad story. No, it's a great story. Uh, like, you wouldn't still have that land now. Like, that's not how things work. Yeah. Mostly. I just like, you I can't have that much land. Yeah. I, like, you know, back in the day, people used to own tons of land. That was normal. Mm. I, mm. I just like, I've descended from a bunch of rowdy, Gambling drinkers. Fair. Much like dwarfs. <laughs> well, that is true. Uh, but I should say the Stone of Scone still exists. It's got lots of names. It's also called the Stone of Destiny. And uh, it is as is the Scone of Stone. And I find it, once you know that the other one exists, it's very difficult to get it the right way around because you keep thinking of both of them. But it's it was the stone in which Scottish kings were crowned. They had to stand on it. But that is no longer the case. After the unification of Great Britain, the stone ended up as part of the English monarchy's coronation chair. That is rude. It is on loan to Scotland, and you can see it if you visit Edinburgh Castle. But there's rumours, apparently... That that one is fake. The history of the Stone of Schoon, that's the correct Gaelic pronunciation by the way, is actually amazing. There are conflicting stories of its origins, but one legend says it was brought to Scotland from Ireland by the first Scottish king, Fergus I. 
It was taken as a spoil of war by King Edward I, well before the creation of the UK, and placed in his coronation chair, which remains in use, though some doubted he had captured the real stone, which may have been hidden away by monks. It was almost returned in the 14th century, but English crowds rioted and prevented it, so it stayed in England. It was almost blown up by suffragettes in 1914, but it survived, only to be stolen and broken a bit by Scottish students in 1950. They took it back to Scotland, where it was repaired and protected by both government and church. It was eventually returned to Westminster four months later, but rumours again abounded that they only got a copy. The official stone, copy or not, was returned to Scotland in 1996, and in 2020, a public vote decided it would move from Edinburgh Castle to a new museum at the old Perth Town Hall, not far from its original resting place at a monastery in Schoon. This is where sort of Vimes realises how many dwarfs there are living in Ankh-Morpork. And it's kind of like, you know, the, people often talk about Melbourne, where we live, being um, the city with the biggest population of uh, Greek people outside of Athens in the world, because there was massive yeah. migration to Melbourne. And, you know, you can probably say the same about a lot of other groups of folks from around the world who've come to Australia since then. But in the same way, Ankh-Morpork has got a massive dwarf population. And so what the Ankh-Morpork dwarves think is now a big influence on dwarven politics. Yeah, what did I say? There's like 50,000 dwarves. Mm, yeah. 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 Which is a lot because we've got to remember that, you know, the disc world is a lot smaller than our world. And, um, you know, 50,000 is a lot of people because I, I don't know that they ever give a population for Ankh-Morpork, but I doubt it'd be more than a million. Um, mm. And it's probably much lower, particularly at this time of the books. Well, if you think the watch has 60 people in it at its peak. That struck me as well. Like when you find out that during this book, it reminded me that, you know, I was watching Star Trek Discovery. And at one point they reveal that the Discovery, like their maximum crew is something like 120 people. And there's a thing that happens at the end of the second season and they have to do something dangerous and not everybody stays on board to go. And I think when they when they do that, there's only 80 of the crew, and that's the whole crew for the whole ship, because it's just a lot smaller than, you know, the, the bigger starships we're used to from shows like, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation. And it, it felt a bit like that. Like the whole watch is 60 people. And that's still yeah. a lot when you consider that, you know, in Men at Arms, I think it starts off with like six, and then by the end of the book, it's like 20. That's like my graduating class, and we were useless. So, like, how can you <laughs> keep a city in check with that many people? <laughs> uh, well, look, you know. I don't, I, I don't know. Like, I think detritus counts for a couple of cops. True. Yeah. And the gnome as well. I think oh, yeah. Oh, buggy swires. Yeah, so great. Then there's a few other things that happen around the city. Uh, Nobby and Angua are out on patrol, but they're not just sort of wandering around looking for crimes. Nobby, who now has a habit of doing this, has dressed up as a uh, a lady of the night, so to speak as a sex worker and uh, they are just waiting for someone to attack because you're not allowed to like that's that's off limits to the thieves guild but someone does and they catch him in the act and it's none other than Dunnett Duncan yeah. who appears in several of the books or at least gets name checked um who uh, gives them a bit of a tip off about a crime but Angua smells something and is like oh no not him she says to herself um and tells nobody to go off and and then we don't see her again for quite a while because she vanishes yeah. She's mm. got her own shit going on in this book, which I kind of uh, thought was cool. I couldn't stop imagining the purse as one of those like hideous purses that influencers always have, you know, like on Instagram. <laughs> the really, the like really big, weird-shaped like, ones. 
the ones that look like they're made out of like scuba fabric with like arts and craft beads on them and they're like this is like five thousand dollars and you're like really i could make that but i wouldn't because it's horrible so that's what i was imagining i don't know oh, no. i reckon you could be an influencer are you saying my presses are horrible well i haven't seen all of them <laughs> but the ones you have seen are horrible no no no, no just saying <laughs> just saying you might have some some backups <laughs> um, some, I, I do some have some influence. horrible prices. Oh no, I, I used to work for some people who, you know, in, hired influencers to uh, to promote their brand and stuff. And uh, and occasionally they would come into the warehouse uh, to have a look around. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, tweet their own, make your money however you can. But uh, but not that way. Well, no, no, that that way's fine. But it's, no, that's my opinion. <laughs> not that way. <laughs> That's a fine opinion to have. Um, but, uh, look, a few more, a few more things go wrong before anybody leaves to go on this mission to Uberwald. But also there's a couple of, again, and I mentioned this, I think, in Carpe Jugulum, that Pratchett writes so cinematically, he loves to have like a little thread going on where he cuts back to some minor thing that's happening in the background and yeah. stretches it out over several bits. And we get a couple of those at the start of this book. There's someone sneaking into Ankh-Morpork. We find out who that is later. Mm -hmm. And also there's someone in Uberwald running from a pack of werewolves. Uh, and they're doing pretty well at not getting caught until they get into a boat and then they hear a noise and turn around and in the boat with them is one of the werewolves. Someone has not made it. They have not escaped. It, uh, it reminded me very much of that scene from Jurassic Park with the experienced hunter who goes out to take on oh, yeah. take on the Velociraptor, and um, yeah. and sort of like and she turns up to the side. Yeah, like you know he's got he's got a Velociraptor in his sights and stuff, and then suddenly there's one right beside him, and it's that whole sort of oh clever girl like like game recognizing game <laughs> <laughs> werewolf their wolf <laughs> yeah right there right behind you. There is um, a bit of game recognizing game later with like a particularly like nasty good killing machine character who sort of appreciates the people who bring about his doom, like, you know, the Princess Bride character. Mm, yes, very true. And he turns up in just a moment, that particular character. But also we get, you know, Vimes is talking to Sybil about the fact that this is happening and she's, of course, delighted. He's going to be doing stuff as the Duke and also it'll be a nice trip for them. And she's trying to tell him something important. Yeah, but they get interrupted, and this happens like three or four times during the book. Um, and I look, I already knew what it was because I know what happens during the books. But I think also this is such a trope, and it's nearly always this bit of news. I hate this in film and TV and books where someone goes, "I've got something very important to say." It's and then someone barges in and like you know changes the subject, and I've gone, yeah. "Oh my god!" Like. This, just say, excuse just say, me for a second, my wife's about to tell me something important. Although, to be fair to Vimes, she doesn't ever say, I've got something very important to tell you. No, 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 that's true. But she does mention but, the name of the lady she's been talking to yeah. who is, you know, who, who's got a very specific job. There's, a, there's only one thing that could mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah And exactly. he's a policeman. He should know that. So, he should pick up on that yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, look, it works for the dramatic. It, it's a trope and, it, and he, you know- Pratchett's leaning on it so he can have that revelation towards the end. But I think we all kind of know. Like, mm. I think even if you're reading this book for the first time, you know that she's trying to tell him that she's pregnant. Yeah. but And, and, and wasn't Vimes doing that thing where he's he's multitasking, where yeah. He, yeah. she's talking to him and he's, and he's trying to figure stuff out while also automatic speaking to her? <laughs> yeah. 
Which is like, it's very relatable. I think the one thing that kind of makes it feel a little bit dated is that Pratchett writes about it as a thing that husbands do. Whereas I think realistically, everybody does that to some degree. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people do that to some degree. Yeah, a lot of people, 99% of people. Yeah, yeah. It's not really a gendered activity. Yeah, I'm doing it right now. How dare you? But that was quite a pertinent uh, thing that he said. I do like that he explicitly says Sybil is aware of this and she she clocks that it's quite impressive the way he says something useful even when he's not really paying attention. Oh, yeah, he adds he adds to the, the conversation rather, yeah. rather than just uh, answering, yeah. Hmm. But the thing that interrupts them is that the replica scone of stone has been stolen from the Dwarf Bread Museum, possibly by thieves who were hiding in there when Carrot and Vimes were there earlier. It vimes immediately as like, this can't be a coincidence. Maybe they're going to try and swap it with the real one. And Carrot says, that's that's dumb. Like, no dwarf would be fooled. And besides, it's got a big extra on the bottom of it. So, yeah. you know. But Vimes is still suspicious. No, it's got to have something to do with this. The timing can't be a coincidence. And so he gets into researching about Uberwald and trying to learn about dwarf culture by talking to Cheery. Because Cheery and Angua and Detritus, who are all originally from Uberwald, are all supposed to come with him but angua's gone missing so it's just going to be cheery and detritus have i been saying his name wrong all this time what no, do you say detritus too, i say detritus. So. detritus look it's yeah. one of those words where i think there are a couple of pronunciations depending on you know where you learn to speak english and what your accent is mm-hmm. um so look and maybe detritus is not correct i don't know that's how oh. i've always said it oh no I it is a real that. word yeah no it is yeah no, yeah because i've 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 got a whole bunch of uh, World of Warcraft characters that I've named after trolls from the Pratchett books. <laughs> so I've, I've, I mean, not that not that Warcraft trolls are anything like Pratchett trolls. No, no, no. But uh, like, I've got uh, Detritus. I've got uh, Christopherase. Uh, like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've just uh, bun- named a you whole got bunch. A Blue John. I don't have a Blue John. Maybe because yeah. we meet Blue John in this book. He's great. He's just huge. I love him. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll have to, you know what, I'm going to play some World of Warcraft after this and, uh, and make, they do, make myself they a new troll. Blue. Yeah. Make him extra tactful and cultural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, uh, he's, he's trying to figure out what he needs to know. Bit suspicious that no one's seen Angro. He's like, oh, okay. But he talks to Carrot about it and he says, look, I think she's, she's had a lot on her mind. Uh, werewolf stuff. I think she's just off like thinking about stuff. So he doesn't worry about it too much. Yeah. But then the other person who shows up now is a man named Inigo Skimmer, who Vetinari has sent to go along with Vimes as a kind of cultural attache. Skimmer. <laughs> I He's thought what, of that. One of the, uh, one um, of the, the clerks or the clerks. Yeah, yeah, dark clerk. We don't find out about them until a bit later. Um, I think they're mentioned in Going Postal and a couple of the later books, but, but he is clearly one of them. Yeah. Cause he's, as we find out later, he is an assassin. I think we can say that now. It's yeah. okay. Uh, but but we don't know that at this stage, except that Vimes is very suspicious about him, um, partly because of his walk. And then he does this thing, this great <laughs> thing, where he throws the orange at him and he doesn't flinch, but he also doesn't catch it. He just lets it sort of bounce off him. Yeah. Blinks a bit. But he seems like an inoffensive little number-crunching person. I like I like that mm-hmm. bit because, cause as you say, he, he doesn't flinch when it's thrown at him. He doesn't try to catch it. It just sort of hits him and he looks down at it uh, like, so is this what rich people do? Throw oranges <laughs> at people? And like, you know, and you go, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's a valid thought. Caligula would definitely throw oranges at people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's eating them. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, he's doing something to them. Oh God, yeah. Let's not mm. let's not go down that road. Um, we'll call him by his name. It's all right. <laughs> but yes, Inigo's going to come with him. And the last thing he kind of finds out before they head off is that there's been a murder of a craftsman named Wallace Sonkey, who is famous for making or infamous or infamous, yes, for making Sonkeys, which is the Hank Morpork genericized trade name. A slang term for condoms. Although they, Pratchett is a bit shy. He never uses the word condom in the book. No, he doesn't. No. No, not once. Uh, he uh, uh, uses uh, protectives. Hmm. Protectives. The closest you get to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, I thought that was cute, but also, uh, quite advanced. Like they're made of rubber, which didn't happen in the real world until, well, I guess it's industrial revolution kind of era. They used to make them out of all kinds of things. Horrifying things. I was just yeah. I was watching a watching a cooking show the other day and they were talking about bouson from down south in America, uh, which is basically intestine wrapped, right? With it's got rice and meat and you know it's delicious, a bit uh, like a haggis by the sound of it. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But it's sausage shaped, but like you know, it's, it's got a bu- it's got a bunch of interesting stuff stuffed inside it, and basically the um, casing is quite tough. It's not like a sausage; you can't really crack it and bite into it. Uh, you always almost like suck the meat out of it. And halfway through, this guy uh, eating it, and he goes, "Yes." And uh, it wasn't up until recently that they uh, they stopped using these uh, for condoms. And he's going, "Oh, good, good to know." Yeah, <laughs> I had heard about the sausage wrappers being used as one before. I did finish recently reading a book about the victims, like the canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, and it did show that um, lack of contraception really ruined a lot of people's lives, like in the eighteen hundreds. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Taking that to a grim place. Yes. But yeah, this, look, it's a mystery novel. So anytime there's a murder and you're like, why would this murder happen? We don't know. It's clearly going to be related. And I do love that they send Red Shoe, the first zombie in the watch, to investigate. Because he's like, yeah, I'm on the homicide squad because dead people don't really bother me. And Oh, uh, no, I do like, though, the door opens and he goes, Red Shoe, homicide. And and then the guy goes, (laughs) and he goes, I'm from the watch. I guess he's, he's just saying, oh, I'm just getting that out of the way. Oh, no, I've been killed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am a homicide. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am from the homicide squad, but also homicide. That's how I died. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Don't sad. freak out. But very funny. Uh, but yeah, he, I love that he though is, is he's very smart, Reg. Mm. He often don't get to see him except as you know, really comic relief. And obviously he is a bit of comic relief here too, but he's also a good copper because he investigates and he, he notices the smell of the rubber factory. And, and the sulfur and the and the and the cat urine sort of mm-hmm. odor and puts that together with a smell that was at the theft of the stone of I keep saying it the wrong way around the fake scone of stone the royalty dessert let's, let's just call it that yeah. from now on <laughs> yes and he's like oh I think I know what's going on here because there's also there's been talk of a special job so he becomes pretty convinced that someone um, wanted to make a copy of the scone using the fake one from the museum as a model. and then... Or they just didn't want it to make more scones. That's... <laughs> <laughs> you keep your currants in, in, on the inside. Uh, no, that's... I can't but not Not ready for children. <laughs> uh, this has all gone horribly wrong. Uh, I'm but... sorry. It's gone horribly sconed. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's sure he's sure that that's what's happened is they've made a rubber mold of the scone and that someone's made a copy. Although why they would make a copy of a coffee, nobody's really sure. 
and there's, and there's a little cool little black cat freak out where, uh, he turns around and there's basically the rubber outline of Sonky because they've had to pull him out of the rubber and cut him out of the rubber. So there's basically that's like right. he shed his skin. That's Oof. right. Oh, it's gross. And that's how they killed him. Yeah. They dipped him in the, the, um, hot. No, no, no rubber, they, they sort of rubber. it first. So it's not, not as bad oh, as it yeah. could be. Okay. Yeah. It's still yeah. gross though. I was thinking it's though. gross, like, but like he wasn't alive for that bit. I was thinking because they talk about it later that like, you know, yeah, there, there was a big gash in his throat, um, from where, where his, his throat was slit. And I've gone, well, they've got a perfect mold of it. Like, yeah. You, like, so it's, see what it's, a, it's a real CSI moment where like everybody, <laughs> you could just rub hot rubber into it and then peel it out and have like, you know, Ank Morpork CSI. Oh, oh, that shoe takes his sunglasses off and his yeah. eyes come with it. And then the yeah, like, comes <laughs> up in the background. <laughs> yeah, his eyeballs come out with the sunglasses. Which, um, the Who song would they... No, it's not the Who, is it? Because, you know, they have Who Are You is the theme song to the original CSI, but then each other CSI show had, like, a different... Who Are You? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, all right, let's not... Well, I, I'm, I'm wondering now what CSI Ang Morpork. I mean, it, it, oh it, my god, look, CSI Ang Morpork. I would watch every episode of that. Wouldn't we all? Absolutely. Who would be your lead investigator? Because it can't be Vimes. No, it'd be well. It'd be Carrot would be the lead, but then you you know, the CSI nah. team would be Cheery, be sh- like Shoe or something. And you have an Igor, like the weird oh, person in the lab. Like yeah, it'd have to be an e- yeah, definitely Igor well, in the lab. But- well, CSI is about the crime scene investigators and not, you know, it's not really about the lead detectives. So it would be led by Cheery. Really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I reckon Cheery would be. And then, and then Igor. Yeah. Cheery and Igor. Cheery, Igor in the lab. And maybe Angua, because, you know, she could use a werewolf sense. Smelling. She'd like wonder yeah. and be like, this is gross. And then just like crack a clue and then leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be. Bones. <laughs> While the CSI business goes on in the background, uh, Vimes... oh, yeah, we should we should crack on because we're not even in Uber World yet. <laughs> no, we've got a long way to go, and so does Vimes because he gets in the coach with um, Inigo and Sybil and Cheery and Detritus and his servants, and uh, and they head off uh, in two coaches. And there's some disagreement about who should sit in which one, but they they head off through the countryside, and along the way, Vimes is trying to read up on Ubervolk because. You know, like any good attaché, Inigo has shown up with, uh, you know, the red briefcase full of briefing documents. Yeah. Um, it's not, I, I kind of sad that, you know, in the UK, if you're not familiar with this listeners, um, the ministers, senior ministers in particular are given a red briefcase that has all the documents they're supposed to read to brief them. I'm sure, I don't know if that still happens. Like presumably they get emails now. Is that why it's called a briefcase? No, I well, I don't think so. Or is that why you're a cultural attaché because you have an attaché case with all the cultural mm. documents in it? Well, see, I thought about that, but I think an attaché case is called it because it gets attached to you. I don't know because like they but often do attachés attach themselves to other attachés. This is a linguistic nightmare. I I, mean... I I applied for a job as a international diplomatic courier. Um, where did you? Yeah, so um, mm. when Australia sends emails off to their embassies around the world. Uh, they also have to send the hard copies. Um, huh. And so uh, I, I applied for a job where my job would be once, maybe twice a month, uh, I would get a briefcase. It would be basically handcuffed to me. Um, and um, I would go through with a diplomatic passport to Thailand. Uh, that was the one I was going for. Uh, and I would be picked up at the airport. Uh, I would be driven to a hotel. 
and then I would be taken from the hotel to the embassy. I would hand off my briefcase and I would go back to the hotel and then picked up and then driven back to the airport and go straight back home. Like no talking to anyone because they needed the physical copies to go with the emails that were sent. And they were looking for people who didn't look like spies or anything like that. <laughs> and so basically they went, let's get the big tattooed pierced guy <laughs> who looks like he's in Thailand, you know, here for like a, a weekend of debauchery. And I went, yeah, 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 let's do that. How do they hide the fact that you're handcuffed to a briefcase? Oh, well, it was like it wasn't technically handcuffed and stuff, but basically, uh, mm. it, it, it was to never leave your side. It was, mm. it was you always to watch over. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't yeah, get it, yeah. unfortunately. Or did no. I? Or fortunately. You'll never tell. Because that sounds like a, <laughs> a scary job. Oh, look, it's probably. Is it that I've been watching a lot of bones. I've like watched. Five seasons of Bones, so that's too much Bones. It's too much Bones. I just wanted a diplomatic passport. Mm, you skip all the lines. <laughs> then they wouldn't be allowed to search your coach. Exactly, uh, mm. as happens in this book. But yeah, they they do head off. If I can get us back to the plot. Okay, sorry. Uh, was Rocket no, they no, head no, off? It's fine. Yeah. It was a great. That was a great diversion. I enjoyed it. But uh, but we, we let's crack on. But yes, they head off. And there's some, you know, there's some nice discussions that happen along the way. Vimes is like sort of musing about the changes that the clacks have brought to the world. And this is early days for the clacks. Like in this book, they've only been around for like a matter of months since they've really caught on, but they've already become super popular and they've gone as far as Ubervold. Uh, but as is the case on the Discworld, once something catches on, it catches on in a big way. Yeah. And, uh, so he's, he's sort of thinking about that, but then he also thinks, oh, but I had this suspicion about Inigo. I'm going to send a message back to Ank Morpork on the clacks when we pass one. And when they have a break stop at an inn, he gets a response. And we don't get told as the reader, but Vimes gets told that he's correct. Doesn't say what what about. And he also finds out that the stolen fake scone of stone has been found after being copied by, you know, a rubber mold. And he's like, oh, what is going on here? And Inigo's like, listen... We've got to keep going quick because we're about to go through this narrow pass and it's well known as an ambush spot for bandits. It's going to be real dangerous. I'd like to ride up with the driver to keep an eye out. And Vimes is like, would you? Well, you're not going to. Get in the coach with my wife. And he's like, but can I have my bag? Which gives Vimes an excuse to go through his bag and find something dangerous as well as a booby trap when he tries to open it. So there's clearly something going on there. We haven't found out it's an assassin in the story yet. They get to kind of where they want to get to at lunchtime. Oh, but they leave the servants behind, actually. And I do want to mention that because Willikens is barely in this book. Yeah, and he's so good and would be really helpful. Yeah, although, yeah. you know, we haven't really got to that stage of him yet. Like, there's that bit in Jingo where he gets in the army and goes a bit off tap. And you're like, what is with you, man? Then in the later books, like, he really comes into his own, particularly in Snuff. But I think there's a couple of others, too, where Willikens is the business. But in this book, he's barely in it, you know? Maybe on a writing level, it's kind of testing out Vimes with the kick-ass sidekick that he has, like, at his disposal, because he has Inigo, kind of, for that. But he obviously can't last beyond this book, so maybe after this book, Willikin steps into that role, to a degree. Mm, yeah, that could be it. Yeah. And I do like Inigo. Yeah, there's a lot of characters introduced in this book. Like, there's yes, so many. Yeah, <laughs> including um, veterinary's old girlfriend, the vampire. 
Oh, Margalotta. Yeah, who yeah. by this stage has already, you know, popped up because she's wondering who's he going to send, who's he going to send. And then there's that great bit where she finds out that it is Vimes when Igor comes and gives her the thing and this this fist just comes out of the out of the coffin going, yes, pumping in the air. <laughs> I thought that was a very cute moment. Um, I like her. She's cool. She's a good character. But Inigo's like, no, we've got to keep going. So they do. And sure enough, they are waylaid by bandits that, who try to take Sybil hostage um, Vimes kills one with something that he took out of Inigo's bag, which we later find out is basically a very tiny concealable hand crossbow that can only really hold one shot. This is a big action sequence here where, you know, Vimes kills one of the bandits. They all jump on the coaches. They run off. Inigo stays behind, kills a bunch of others, and eventually catches up to them at an inn. Vimes confronts him about being an assassin, which he admits, but he's there to protect Vimes and not kill anybody. Uh, this starts a bit of a rumor that comes back later on that Vimes killed all these seven bandits by himself and everyone's a bit scared of him because of it. And oh, a bunch yeah. of dogs. And a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They keep going and eventually they get to Bionk, uh, which is how you pronounce it. <laughs> yes, what do you know about Bonk? <laughs> but yeah, they, they have to talk their way past a few people, including a party of dwarves who want to search the coach, but they claim they have diplomatic immunity. Mm-hmm. which, you know, they do. But eventually they get to where they're going and they start meeting all the important people. They meet the Low King-to-be, uh, Reese Reeson. They meet the Low King's advisor, who in Dwarvish is called uh, something that means ideas taster, which I thought was so great. Yeah, I really like that. Um, who's just named D. He also meets uh, Lady Margalotta, the vampire, um, and he meets the Von Überwald family of werewolves, who are Angua's family. We haven't talked about them yet. They're they're not okay. No, <laughs> like, no like, they're really kind of messed up. But I'd absolutely watch a, like a reality show about them. <laughs> the real werewolves of Uberwald. <laughs> kind of like you know, like that show about the the Osborns. Like that's kind of their vibe. Oh, uh, right. yeah. But I love that the dad is called Guy and the brother is called Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just so good. Yeah, and but then the rest of them have like Seraphine, Angua. Even the like dead sister and the and the Elsa. sheepdog brother. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Angua's real name is Delphine in it, in this. Mm. I always, I always thought that maybe Angua was something that she chose when she left. And I love that you get a sense of who Seraphine is through Sybil's description of her, like from her all girl school kind of vibe. It's like she never writes back to her letters, and they all knew she was a werewolf, and she's kind of like this snobby woman who married into the family. Yeah, I, th- I think you get you get a real sense of who this family is just from that one interaction. Like, you don't need anything else to go, yeah, you guys are – there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this family. Yeah, yeah. And the way they describe Wolf as well is he's just this – like, he hasn't gone feral because he's not, like – like, he's too cruel and calculating for that, but he has just gone full-on – evil <laughs> yeah he's just is it, gone is it the jackal where um is it bruce willis he's like that that terrible killer and he is talking yeah. to oh yeah black and he's like testing out weapons he's like and run he, he's like what do you mean run like, yeah. run and then he starts testing out the weapon on him yeah he makes jack black build a 50 cal weapon and then he blows his arm off with it yeah that's kind of the vibe i get about wolf yeah, he's he's messed up. And it's interesting that Inigo is kind of presented as, as similar because he's this Assassin's Guild scholarship boy who has been picked up by the Guild from... He's not noble like most of the Assassins are, 
but he's got a real knack for and and total ease with killing people. Yeah, he gets he gets found. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, someone see, sees some raw talent in him and goes, yeah, you should probably come with us. Yeah, raw talent for killing people. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, wow. But yeah, look, he, he meets uh, a bunch of these dwarves. But while he's like meeting with the dwarves, he sort of causes a bit of a stir because he has put a few things together and uh, has heard a rumour and he is pretty sure that the scone of stone has been stolen and he mentions this to D and the king and they like get him not to talk about it but they're like yeah all right you can investigate it and he insists on bringing cheery with him and this is cause a big stir because you know we haven't really talked about this but the very conservative dwarves which is most of the dwarves in Uberwald they're very traditional and so they don't have any kind of outward display of their gender. Well, I mean, they do because the default gender presentation of dwarves is male, but they don't acknowledge the existence of male or female dwarves. They just assume all dwarves are the same and all dwarves are basically male. And so her being like an out female dwarf and dressing like it and wearing makeup and using a feminine pronouns yeah. is just, they're all very like, they're not into it. And so the king allowing her to go in with Vimes, who is also not a dwarf, to investigate something in the deep secret places of the dwarves is a bit of a, oh, yeah, the, a big the, deal. Basically, the, almost like the holy, well, not that they're holy because they're not religious, but like they're, they're, <laughs> they're the holiest of holy areas to go to for a dwarf. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. the holiest hole that they have. <laughs> Isn't it, what do they call it, the Chamber of Law or something like that? Because not only is it where the the scone of stone sits, but all around it are all of the shelves where they keep all of the rulings of dwarf law. And so it's this massive chamber with all these shelves and, and writings yeah. and stuff. I kept trying to cool. imagine it the way he was describing it, but I could not stop picturing it as the Phantom of the Opera lair. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do. I mean, it's got the enormous chandelier later on that becomes very important to the plot. So, yes, I, I, I had a bit of a touch of that as well. But very quick question. Do you think... Vimes raising the fact that it was stolen sealed his fate, or was his fate sealed the moment he came by coach to Ubervolt? Like, because he was part mm. of their plan, but do was you think he, he was worked in? Yeah, but well, I mean, he that's was, what I'm asking. Like, like was he worked in this... because of that, or was he worked in before that? I think he's a course correction because, as we find out, yeah. the reason they want to search the coach, they figure out later on, is because the new fake scone that was created in Ankh Morpork was hidden in one of his coaches. So they wanted to find it and claim that this was, you know, a terrible uh, incident and that he was somehow implicated because the conservative dwarves who want... It's it's quite... It's like an interesting plot because it's... They, it's yeah. On the they, surface of it, it's not that complicated, but the more you think about it, the more there's a lot of, like, kind well, of political angles well, going they, on they, they were going to implicate whichever ambassador came from Agmorpok. Yeah. So mm. the fact that Vimes came... And Margalotta does that fist bump. You go, yes, this is going to screw them up. And Vimes has that knack of just needling people and, yeah. you know, and, and being, and looking <laughs> like he sort of doesn't know what he's doing, but knowing exactly what he's doing, like mentioning baths to the werewolves and stuff and like, you know, getting them all offside and, and getting them all rustled up so that they might, you know, spill something that they didn't want to spill. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The original plan, as you say, was to implicate Ankh Morpork, 
uh, because the conservative dwarves do not like the fact that there's so many dwarves living in Ankh Pork because those dwarves are very, very liberal. It's yeah. kind of, you know, it's a bit like, you know, sort of like the Republican Party and people who live in New York, right? They like, they know that most of them vote Democrat, they vote liberal. And so they're the like, latte we don't sipping like that. liberals. Is that the. Y- the yeah, that's it's the <laughs> the Australian equivalent. What would what would the Ankh-Morpork equivalent of that be? This is for listeners outside of Australia. This is what uh, the conservative pundits in Australia uh, often call um, those of us from you know fancier the fancy city folks who you know <laughs> don't like torturing refugees. Uh, we get referred to as latte sipping liberals, which is ridiculous because I don't drink coffee. Rat munching ground dwellers. Yeah, I've been. I've- <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, all dwarves eat rats, though. What? Do, what yeah, are the angle munching? Dwarves? Like they like nibble at them daintily, it, like they can oh, just. Oh, I have, see. Yeah. yeah, fair. Okay, I like uh, that. Rat licking. I think that would be a that would be much more disparaging. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. Just trying to. Okay. I'm trying to think of something that cut me own throat. Dibbler cells. <laughs> but, uh, oh, pie eating. Yeah. I'm trying to think yeah. of something he doesn't sell. Pie-eating sky lovers. Yes. <laughs> oh. All right. So, yes, this is happening. But I think it's a course correction, as I say, because yeah. that's what's supposed to happen. But because they can't go with that plan and because he's sticking his nose in, I think D, who, look, I think we'll blow the gaff because we've got a lot of plot to get through. But we find mm. out D is behind this from the dwarf side of things, or at least is one of the main players. And D sort of goes, all right, I'm going to let you investigate it, but I'm going to have to frame you as part of this because you're otherwise going to find me out. So I think I think if he hadn't stuck his nose in, he still would have been, you know, implicated, but it might not have been him personally implicated. It yeah, might yeah. have just been Ankh Morpork in general. Um so yeah, I think I think definitely sticking his nose in is what got him into the amount of trouble he later gets into. Yeah. Let's quickly do a um, rundown of the B plot where a carrot has quit the watch. And chased after Angua with Gaspode to try and help find her. And he, they eventually do after he's chased by wolves and is on the cusp of death. And it's kind of like that scene in Beauty and the Beast, except like the beast is Angua and she rescues him with the wolves rather than the other way around. And he is introduced to Gavin, who is a very alpha wolf who's possibly like got some werewolf in the background back in his lineage. He was a good friend of hers back in the day. We learned a bit of backstory. They're on their way to Uberworld as well. So um, that's that plot. Meanwhile, Colin has been mm. promoted because both Carrot and Vimes are away and he initially doesn't want to and then he goes mad with the power and he gets obsessed with his sugar cubes. Oh, that was so weird. That was so weird. I, I enjoyed it, but I also was worried that it was going to stick around way too long. And then about halfway through the book, we stop getting bits of that plot and then we come back to it like much closer to the end. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad. Like, I just, I, I, I enjoyed how much it was there and I was worried it was going to outstay its welcome because it was just, I mean, Colin is not a very likable character quite often. Um, I yeah. think my gut feeling is he's not meant to be as unlikable as Pratchett often makes him. Like, I think we're yeah. supposed to like him more than I do, but I, but anyway, I might be misreading that. I don't know, but. I think it's 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 he and Nobby Nobs, uh, the Laurel and Hardy of the Watch. Like you know, yes. they're there for comic effect, and that's it. Um, they they're not meant to advance as characters. They're just meant to like you know, oh something funny's happening. Uh, we'll put those characters in that situation, and that's fine. Um, yeah, I could have mm. completely done without that side plot. Like that that could have not been in the book, and it wouldn't have affected it whatsoever. There, yeah, there are a couple of like fun parts of it. I think. Oh, yeah, it's sure. not all terrible. 
Yeah. It's not necessary to the plot. <laughs> it's like, it shows kind of like what's happening back home, but it's like if Lord of the Rings had a whole bunch of like, what's happening in Hobbiton kind of like yeah. things going yeah. on. It's nice to see, but we don't need it. Yeah, I don't need to see the cleanup after Bilbo's 11th, 11th birthday or whatever it is. 11th. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't need to see, you know, the, the caterers cleaning up. No, that's fair enough. That's fair yeah, enough. Cleaning up the singed grass from all the fireworks. But um, <laughs> I do like that he was described as going totally bursar because I, I enjoy that the bursar's reputation has gone beyond yeah. unseen university. And that's how they describe what they think Vimes is going to do as well. Like they say, he's going to go completely bursar. And they also say he's going to go completely librarian poo, which is clearly <laughs> the Hank Morpork version of ape shit. And I, that was, that was very funny. I enjoyed that. Uh, but those, yeah, those two side plots are kind of the only side plots. Like it's unlike a lot of Pratchett books, there's not like sort of two or three main plots heading towards each other. Like you got in Carpe Jugulum, for example. Here, you've kind of got the main plot, which is fairly linear, straightforward, but has a lot of moving parts. And then you've got these kind of C is for colon C plot in the background, which has not really got anything to do with anything. And then you've got Carrot going off on his own, which is really just sort of to give Angua a bit of time, you know, to shine, I guess, or to... I mean, that is Gaspode erasure, but okay. Okay, that's true. There's also Gasboat is involved. Yeah. And they look, they have some fun adventures. There's the whole thing where they hear that someone has trapped a wolf and they get worried that it's going to be Angua and they go and save the wolf by challenging them that Gasboat's going to fight the wolf and win and everyone thinks that's a joke and then he does. And like, that, that's, there's some fun stuff there. And it's yeah. the classic, like, not translating it accurately gag, but yeah. But it's, it's brief and it doesn't outstay its welcome. Gaspode's amazed Carrot did, in fact, grab the roast chickens before he rushed off to, to <laughs> save the wolves. Like, Gaspode's going, don't you forget those roast chickens. Like, don't you forget. And then the next scene is like, he got the chickens and still yeah. saved the wolf. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he is kingly in the best of ways. Before we move on past that, there is one other thing about that side plot with Gaspode and Angua and Carrot that I, I think is worth talking about, which is there's the implication that it's not just that he pushes himself so hard that he goes too far up in the mountains with not enough food and collapses, but that he has calculated that and done it on purpose so that Angua will have no choice but to find him and save him. No. Uh, so that he can find her. Yeah, it, there's there's a bit in there where Gaspo's wondering if this is part of his crazy, desperate plan. Um, or maybe it's Angua who meant, who wonders it. I, no, I think it's Gaspard. I think Gaspard's the one who's like, did he do this on purpose? Because he knows this is the only way she'd come out and find us. It's the ambiguity of Carrot, because like you never know if he's like working on a higher level or not. Yeah, because you never see inside his head. Yeah, you don't often get a Carrot talking to Carrot sort of. Uh, well, you, you never do. Yeah, like, I think the the closest you get is in the earlier ones where he's writing letters home to his dwarf parents. Even then, you know, he's writing for them. He's That's not what necessarily his true thoughts are. Yeah. He always came across as some sort of, like, weird avatar for me. Like, he's this big, handsome, muscular being imbued with power and, and charisma and, and everyone's just sort of drawn to him, wants to be his friend and help and in whatever way they can, um, which is great fun because they play him as a bit of an idiot sometimes, or at least naive. Um mm. But, yeah, you never really get to see inside his head or what he's sort of thinking. He's, he's, I don't know, he's reactionary, maybe, rather than... Yeah. 
And there's even that line about how diplomacy, like I think it's um, Skimmer who says it, about diplomacy, a good part of it is seeming like you're stupid. Mm. So that kind of ties in with carrot stuff as well. Or just is an accurate comment about diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. I the, One other thing I want to ask, what do you think about this subplot? Because, like, it does, in a, in a way, it seems kind of pointless because Angua is supposed to go with Vimes as, yeah, as an official person. doesn't need to be person. there, and neither does Gaspard. She could have just come along. But I think yeah. that maybe, because it is a book about kings, it's kind of good to have Carrot, who's always throughout the series sort of implied to be, like, a true king, like a just king, a noble king, like a born king. He's there kind of for the comparison. So, like, we've got the mm. low king, who also seems like he'd be really good, but that's more of, like, a political position. It's not a born thing. So I think he yeah. might be there story-wise to show the difference. Because mm. all along the way, he's inspiring awe and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But do we but need him, though? Necessary. Do you think we no. need Because I kind of felt that it took away from Angua's story because a good there's this whole subplot that's about Gaspard and, and Carrot catching up to and finding her and then mm-hmm. once they do find her she has to deal with him i mean i guess it means that she's got someone she has to explain what's going on to but surely she would have had to explain what was going on with her family to vibes if she'd just come along so i yeah i i kind of i found that an odd choice and while there was some fun stuff along the way i'm just i'm just not sure if it was a good one i don't know do you think he was literally a vehicle for gaspode because we would never really find out what the wolves were about or the werewolves mm. or like unless Gaspard was talking to everyone and explaining it to Carrot, who's basically he's explaining it to us. Like so yeah. so Carrot was just a vehicle for Gaspard to be in that area. And Gaspard has a quite a nice character arc across this as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Gaspard is a like I would sooner cut Carrot from this book than I would cut Gaspard. Oh yeah. But you can't really have one without the other. Yeah. Well, I don't know that that's true because you – I mean, I don't think Gaspard would be there if, if it weren't for Carrot's need for him. No. But I also – like, Gaspard doesn't really interact with Carrot in the previous watch books that he's in. He's really hanging out with Angua the whole time. He, I could see him chasing after her if she look, looks like she's going off in distress because he has kind of a thing for her from the earlier books. But he's, so, he's, but he's such a city dog. Like, he's, a, mm. he's never going to leave the city unless he's, you know, coerced by Carrot who says – you know, he goes to steak, yeah, every day, yeah, every day. Yeah, that's Which true. he does not get. Which he doesn't get? No. He, get. he gets a chicken. He, yeah. Which he, he does It's like right. those three days of wandering through the snow mm. where there's nothing. Yeah. Not even steak. There's a, lot, there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of mentions about how low to the ground he is and how high the snow is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but essentially, I agree it could have been pared back. I liked it, especially for Gaspard. It didn't mm. detract from it, but I don't think it necessarily added to the story. Yeah. But, I mean, also, I think he doesn't get in the way too much at the end. Like, Angua still is the one who has to deal with her family because she's the only one who can, up to a certain point, which we'll talk about when we get to the ending. She takes the four there and Carrot kind of hangs in the background and then is taken out of the action entirely for a while. But then still right at the end, he comes back and has to have a sort of a hero moment to reinforce how magically wonderful he is. And look, I, and I like Carrot as a character, but I did find in this book, I kind of could have done without him. Anyway, let's get back to the main plot. But I suppose we should also say that Angua kind of does reveal a couple of things that are going on. She talks about her family and she reveals that she knows that the dwarves approached 
her family for help with something. And mm-hmm. we already know that they've got a plot going with the dwarves because the first scene where we meet her family, they're talking about that they've got something going on with the dwarves. So we know that they're deeply involved in one way or another. They're in cahoots. They are. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, things, things progress. Uh, they, they meet a few more people. Um, they meet some guards who Vimes refers to as Colonesque and, uh, Nobsky yeah. because he's just like, I've, I know who you are. <laughs> You're the local equivalent of my mates back home. Yeah. But it's not necessarily going uh, super well and they're not sure what really is going on at this stage. But when they investigate the chamber where the scone is kept, they realise there's a few different ways you could take the scone out of here, but... It's just a locked room mystery, basically, where there's a weight thing where if you go in one weight and you come out another, the guards will detect you, so how can you possibly remove the scone? And then there's this, like, to me, glaringly obvious scene where, like, Cheery's just, like, running sand through her fingers. I'm like, come on, come on, get it. <laughs> but Yeah, and then, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, wait another 150 pages before he gets it, so... Yeah, yeah if yeah. you if you're a... If you've been 1,500 years gunning the scone with this same sort of trap and stuff, surely someone has figured out, you know, this way to get it out. Yeah. Mm, Or not get it out, as the case may be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, he he has a look around there, he investigates it. He starts to work it out. But this is, like, after his initial meeting with the king. So he's been off and he's met everybody else. He comes back. There's a, a bit of a side thing where he decides he wants to get a message back to Ang Morpork. And so he goes for a nice quiet ride with Sybil in the coach out to the nearest Clax Tower. But the Clax Tower has been busted up. Mary Celeste, yeah. Yeah. And inside he finds Inigo Skimmer, who's already there investigating it, and is like, yep, someone's killed the operators or scared them off uh, and smashed the machine. And they seem to have known what they were doing. But they might still be around. Inigo's a bit cautious about this. Is you go back to the embassy, take your wife with you. Like, this is dangerous. What are you bringing her out here for? I'm going to send up an emergency flare, which will bring a repair crew. And he does that and pretty much clearly is killed by a bunch of werewolves who show up out of nowhere. Like, it doesn't specifically say they're werewolves, but the way that they show up and kill him, you're like... Well, it's the same sort of clever way where he's inside, he hears a knock on the door, he goes and looks out and goes, well, there's no one at the door, and then goes down, and there's the last line, it's like he realises you can knock on two sides of the, the same door... So the werewolf is mm-hmm. clearly inside with him and just luring him down to, to kill him. And it's that, uh, it's yeah. another clever girl moment. Yeah, very game much. recognizing game. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And look, we're not entirely sure what happens to him, but it's sort of implied that it's not good for him. But then we go back to, finds out the cultural event before the coronation, which is a dwarf opera, and he meets the von Überwalds again and meets uh, Wolfgang, the brother, for the first time. But he's without his Wolfgang. that's true (laughs) yes wolfgang's wolfgang it's ridiculous that's that's very good but yeah they're in the queue to say hello to the king and and make you know pleasantries when um this chamber where all the dwarves have been watching the opera which is lit by a massive chandelier suddenly that the chandelier starts to fall down and vimes is close enough to the king that he rushes forward and throws the king to the ground hopefully out of the way and detritus catches this massive chandelier and i'm just sort of was envisaging this in my brain and it's like one of those things that pratchett writes on the on the page that you kind of have this great imagination movie of oh i'm picturing this really clearly because it's so cool i've got the exact picture in my head is actually from a marvel comic 
called Secret Wars, uh, and there's a picture mm-hmm. of the Hulk holding up a mountain uh, while, like, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, everyone else is on the ground, and he's basically got this mountain on his back protecting everyone. Like, it's a billion tons of rock, and he's just going, yeah, I'll, I'll catch that. <laughs> yeah, it is very much like that. He, he is a good cultural attache. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's true. But Vimes uh, does not get to celebrate this seeming rescue of the king because he's immediately knocked out. And then there's this great sequence where he wakes up to find himself in prison and Dee comes to visit him and says, like, we're pretty sure you had something to do with this because we found Skimmer's dead body up where the chandelier was and you're stuck in this prison now because also you touched the king and that is absolutely forbidden by dwarf law. You're not allowed and to touch the king. I would have king. immediately said he's not the king yet. The coronation hasn't happened. Yeah, I don't. I I, I get the feeling that the king elect because the king elect's doing all this stuff before yeah, they're he, invested. He specifically says I'm not the king yet because like earlier on he's like you're the king. He's like oh, no, no, I'm not the king yet. So yeah. I've been like, well, you can't touch the king, but he's not the king. He yeah, hasn't and been coronated, which is why rules. we're all here. Yeah. And then the book would have ended there with everyone being like, you're correct. Off you go. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he's still, they're he, still claiming that he had something to do with the death because of, you know, they found Skimmer and. Yeah, that's all circumstantial. The main thing he's in for is touching the king and he hasn't touched the king because there is no king. Well, look, I don't have the books of dwarf lore in front of me. I feel like <laughs> maybe you're not allowed to touch the king the day before. Before they get caught. Yeah, but that's not what they say. They say you touch the king, and he did not. All right, all right. This is why I don't play Dungeons and Dragons with you, Liz. Like, hey, you want to I- play Scrabble? It's, it's fun. <laughs> I'll be chill. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. I'm on. I'm in. I'm in. But this is also the great escape sequence, because after D leaves, Vimes finds that someone's hidden in he goes like little concealable crossbow in his pillow. Um which he does not use, but he does fight his way out when dwarves come to bring him food. And he throws the crossbow away without using it. And he, he makes the point of telling those dwarves, I could have used this. Um, I could have killed you. Uh, but he throws it away as he escapes. And someone wanted me to. Yeah, because he's mm. sure he's been set up, which of course he has been. Um, and he's trying to escape. And there's this great, you know, he goes through the caves. There's a glow worm in a cage or a glow bug that gives him light. He loses. And he's trying to climb up all these planks in this big sort of spiral staircase thing. And he's falling and he's going to die. Treasure, that bit. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I liked it. I've never seen that. Oh, my God. It's it's oh, so it's, great. It's, it's really good. It, d- Is it? Despite, yes. despite Nicolas Cage, it's, it's really good. How dare you, despite the- Nicolas Cage. Oh, no, I love Nicolas but- Cage, but he's very good at this. Okay. No, I did see a very good tweet that's like, I feel a lot less impressed by him stealing the, the like, Declaration of Independence after the Capitol Hill siege. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. uh, but I it is a wonderful say, movie. You should watch it immediately. Yeah, I went and saw the, okay. the Declaration of Independence and stuff, uh, and I thought there'd be, like, thousands of people looking at it. It was me and, like, five other people. And so hmm. and I'm going, really? does, there, does anyone, like... This is a touristy thing. No, there's like me and mm. five other people. That's mm. wild. Yeah. There you go. But she turns up to help him get out. And I like that Pratchett's vampires do all the cool vampire stuff so they can fly, which I thought yep. is, is kind of awesome. And so mm. she helps um, get him out of the um, the pit that he's trying to climb out of fairly So she doesn't say she's doing that. He's deeply suspicious that he's going to get murdered the whole time until he's like released into yeah. like a free 
field well, and he's like, oh, wait, hang on. Yes, but also she does that thing where the, there's this great callback because in the scene where they first meet, she says a couple of things that Vimes doesn't quite pick up on, but she seems to understand his need to not even drink one drink because you know, yeah. he's an alcoholic, so he can't, can't even drink one drink. And she understands that. And then when they're talking in this scene, she kind of calls back to that and says, not one drop. And he realizes she's a teetotaler. She, she doesn't drink blood. And this sort of re- makes him reassess his attitude towards vampires and what, a little what's bit. What's the line? It's like, uh, I know I I'm a teetotaler. Uh, you have to be rich to be an alcoholic or something mm, along yeah. those lines. Oh, yeah. Something yeah, like I that. I was a drunk. I was not wealthy enough to be an alcoholic. Something yeah, like yeah. That. Yeah, 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 that's right. So they, there's that understanding between them. But you're right, he's very suspicious until they kind of, like, get Well, she that drops accord. that and then he gets it. So, but I think that's once yeah. they're out of danger. I always, I always feel like Margalotta in this book was like, you know, there's two people playing chess and she's watching. And then when they both go up, get up to have a toilet break, she moves a couple of pieces. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a great way like, to describe like it. she's yeah. she does it she doesn't give advantage to either side but she changes the board slightly mm. and just goes oh yeah. what well, what are you what are you talking about no, like you know i was i was never here we were never there we we never had this conversation i don't show up on cameras yeah <laughs> yeah like you can't you can't prove anything so just go about your yeah. day and like when she drops him into the snow and he goes i haven't even got any clothes and she's going oh well but you're free. You're free. You're not dead. Yeah. That's a good thing. There start. you go. You're ahead. There, off you go. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, it's not long after that that he manages to find his way into the fat baths. Like, this is gross, but he gets through the, the sort of fat country and then gets into- the fat uh, Oh, it's before he gets there, isn't it? It's, it's, he, he goes he to the sulfur springs. springs. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like- Lowering himself in and going, oh, this is way better. But then when the mist clears for steam, uh, he realizes, there. yeah, Wolfgang and his wolfmates are there. And he's like, uh oh. And he basically, he doesn't do the whole, like, I'll explain my plot to you. But he, he's, in fact, he, he says that. Yeah. And then he's like, why don't you tell me what you think? And Vime says, I think nobody stole the scone. And I think you're in on it. And Wolf is like, yep. And he sort of, I mean, he kind of explains his motivations. He wants Uberwald to stay very conservative. He likes the old ways. He doesn't want to see change because he feels like the change that has come into the country has made it weak and he doesn't want them to become like Ank Morpork and be like city people. He wants them to stay wild and, and Uberwaldian. But also this is going to lead to a big destabilization in the power of the dwarves, which will leave a bit of a power vacuum in Uberwald for the werewolves to kind of take over a bit more. I kind of felt like it was a bit of both of those things. Is that how you read his motivation for getting involved in the plot? I sort of read him as like a kind of a Chad who likes to do murders, like anything that will help him do more murders. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, there's definitely that aspect of it. Yeah, he's not shy about doing a murder or two. This this reminded me, this obviously came out many years beforehand, but there's a film that came out last year called The Hunt, where a lot of uh, basically Republicans kidnap a bunch of Democrat voters and drug them and put them in a you know a field basically and then hunt them for sport because their mm. uh, their politics don't align with what they think and also they just fucking love killing people and i think i think this is where wolf is at he doesn't like what's going on with his country and he wants to stop that but also loves murdering people 
I feel like Serafina is driving the more delicate, um, Serafine is his mom yeah. is driving the more delicate political aspects of this coup, essentially. Mm. And he's driving the more brutal aspect together. They have those shared motivations. And I'm sure he would like to the, the, the fallout from the destabilization with the dwarves. But I think his main thing is he just loves the brutality and anything that will let that continue. He's on board for. Well, they mention a couple of times that Vimes sees that nutter look in his eyes. Like, this isn't a guy that you can just sort of put down onto the ground and, and hold down. You've got to take them out. Like, they'll, they'll just keep coming at you. They'll break a bottle on the bar and attack five watchmen. You can't reason it with someone like this. He's the villain from part three of the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you've got to up the stakes every time. It's like, well, we can't have a villain who's, like, got reasonable motivation anymore. We've just got to make <laughs> it some evil jerk. You just want to die. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's a bit that. But I think his mum is driving the political parts of it. It was my takeaway from that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think she's just swept along with the family nonsense. I think she is the one who has the bigger picture view. Like, she's got this sort of husband who wants to just be a wolf all the time. She's got this brutal oh, monster yeah. of a son. But I think she has aspirations as well and wants to stay on top. So I think she just harnesses what she has and pushes things in that direction. Yeah, I think she's certainly, she's instigating the politics of it and she's probably trying to aim Wolf in a certain direction Mm. and just let him go. Yeah. Yeah, look, I really got the impression, though, he was more in charge. Like when they're having that conversation at the start, the whole family knows about the plan. Even the dad, he's even going, oh, dwarfs, Uh, that thing. Uh, we'll get bandits, you know, like in those one word responses that he gives, yeah. which is great. But he knows, he knows what's going on. So I think they're all in on it. But Wolf always seems to be pulling the strings and, and pushing people where he wants to go. Really? Because uh, everybody's afraid of him. That was, that was the, ex- the impression I got I th- that even, even the mum was afraid of him. No, I, I got that in terms of he's a monster in the hunt. Like, cause Angua has that thing about he doesn't play fair with the game anymore. But again, to me, that was like, she's scared of him because he's kind of like a weapon. He's all about the brutality. That's why I think I kind of like Richard's idea of she points him in a different direction. Like she harnesses his skill at the game of horrors to further her ends in the game of politics. Mm. That's my impression. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think he's, I, not that he's not smart enough, but I think he's too impulsive to, you know, to politic with everyone else. Well, I think D is responsible for a lot of the political mm. side of things, like certainly on the dwarf side. But even to and even the, to liaise with D, I don't think he's. I think he would fly off the handle too easily. He needs Seraphine does the politicking, and then if something gets in their way, she sends Wolf after that. Get get that out mm. of the way. You know, oh, the clax is a problem. Get the clax, get get everyone out of the clax. Sends Wolf down to do that. Like, okay. I don't think he's just the muscle, but I think, like, she, yeah, she manipulates him, possibly. Like, he's he's interested, he understands it, but I don't think he comes up with it or drives oh, it. Oh, yeah. He's certainly not stupid, but I think he's too much mm-hmm. of a hair trigger. Yeah, look, I see where you're coming from. I guess I, the particularly that first scene where we meet them, it just really felt like he was the one making all the decisions and the others were going along with it, either because they were too stupid to really follow it, which is you know, the dad, or um, because because there's some, isn't it? Seraphine who's saying like, oh yeah, there are a lot of bandits this time of year, and then Wolf is the one who says, no, not bandits. He's got to get here safely, and then we'll do what we want with him once he arrives. Like he's the one who makes that decision 
He has good ideas, but I don't think like that's where the plot starts. Like I think his mum's got him on board earlier on. So like he does have input in things, but I don't think he's the instigator of the overall plan. Okay. But yeah, I don't think he's the driving force. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fair. That's fair. But right. I do think he's right that he has to be like double tapped because yeah. otherwise he just keep coming. <laughs> Listen, this is one where I'd love to know what you think about, you know, all the people involved in this plot. And remember that we always love to you to get involved in our conversations as well. So why don't you just tell me I'm wrong <laughs> as well uh, on the hashtag uh, Pratchat40, because it is our 40th episode. A couple of, did we even mention that at the start? I don't yeah, know. I think we talked about it before the episode, but yeah. So vote one for Sarah Fiend or vote two for It's the Wolf Gang. It might be might be worth a, a Twitter poll. <laughs> the Wolf Gang, yes. But look, having had this brief chat about what is going on, this is when the, the game begins, which is, as uh, you were talking about, Richard, it's like, yes, you can run and we will hunt you. You've got one hour, and if you reach the city of Bonk before we catch you, you can go free. And get 400 monies. Oh, that's true. Yes, you do get a reward. Which is which is apparently like a dollar fifty Ang Morpok. Yeah, that's right. It's so dismissive. So mean. But it's a great way to annoy Wolf. Like he just, because he he just, he walks away. He doesn't immediately start running. Like Mm. Wolf goes, I'll give you an hour. And he goes, all right. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to take your money too easily. Because I mean, I don't want to spend it all in one place, your 400 crowns or whatever it is. And and, and he's walking away going, oh God, I hope they can't see my face. I'm so scared. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and Vimes is like this is such a great thing. Like I went to a workshop uh, that previous guest on this podcast, Amy Kaufman, ran a little while ago. It was a very short writing workshop, and she was talking about the fact that some authors really enjoy doing really horrible things to their characters. Mm. And this is, I think, up to this point at least, the most horrible, desperate situation that Vimes has been in because he's been imprisoned. He's escaped by the skin of his teeth, and during that escape, he's already possibly broken a few ribs, and certainly like used up an awful amount of energy and he's just had this sort of one chance to catch his breath a little and now he's being hunted by werewolves and he doesn't have pants he doesn't even have pants yet he does get some he's got he's got his he's got his he's got his underwear on because he gets up that's out right. of the, the water and they've gone you get in the water with clothes <laughs> yeah that's right yeah so he's just wandering around his underpants and then there's that great line later on where he's like oh frozen underpants chafe like you wouldn't believe <laughs> like yeah uh that he mentions Oof. that's so good i have i so have put awful. i have put clothes in the in the freezer um it's uh it's rough yeah really yeah i put i Oof. I, I put some jeans in the freezer to see what would happen what did they I, get really stiff and it's happen? really hard to get them on <laughs> Okay, well, I, we couldn't have seen that one coming. Um, <laughs> it was for science, man. You got to do shorts, okay. like basketball. Well, shorts. I got to respect doing things for science. Basketball shorts. I reckon they'd be easier to put on but stay cold because they're porous, right? Yeah, yeah, mm, that's true. Yeah, okay. more science, uh, listeners. If you were going to put some item of clothing in the freezer, <laughs> what item of clothing would it be? I don't know what I'd put in there. I don't think I would put anything in there after Vimes' experience in this book. But anyway, yeah, he's in a pretty desperate situation. And I think this is the worst. He's running from these werewolves that he crosses the weird bubbling pools of fat and going climbs bluff, up a tree. Just yeah, like going bluff. Yeah. Things earlier. Yeah. I, like, I like the fact that he breaks the rules of the game as well. Wolf says, you're not allowed to go into any buildings. And he immediately and goes he into does. a barn and just goes, yeah. and goes oh, I'll grab that sack. And then uh, the, the three ladies come out to help him. And he and he and he and then he uses another one of their buildings uh, to set a trap for the wolves. Yeah, the the triple Chekhov reference. Yeah, 
Um, yeah. Um, that was, <laughs> they were great. Like they're in it for like two scenes and they steal the limelight entirely. And he wins them over by promising them a ticket to Ankh-Morpork yeah, they, if they help they him do, out. They just want to go to the big city. Yeah, they want so to they, get out of the cherry orchard and also to be rid of Uncle Vanya's sad trousers. Yes. Oh, <laughs> amazing. So they give him an axe and the sad trousers. Yes. And off he goes. Uh, and so he does eventually escape and he gets, it's interesting because he gets, you know, about as far as the previous ambassador who we discover uh, later on is the person who was being chased by werewolves earlier in the book and who has a great name. What's his name? Like Wonko Sleeps? Sleeps? Wando Sleeps. That's his name. Sleepy Joe. What a great name. Pratchett really had a gift for weird character yeah. names that nonetheless worked great. Uh, who also yeah, had he, a big uh, spy cabinet that Sybil finds earlier that is just full of like, exposition. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, all the notes about what kind of fat there is, and he's got, like, the tiny little uh, spy iconograph that has the smallest imp that Vimes has ever seen inside it. That was great. I haven't been fed for two weeks. Feed your imps. Like, the imp doing the the crossing uh, to make sure no one was feeding, and the iconograph imp hadn't been fed for weeks. That's not okay. Feed your imps, people. What do imps eat, do you reckon? Because they're like tiny, they're basically tiny demons, right? They summon them. Tiny souls. I picture like fish food. <laughs> you sprinkle it in and over the box. Wait, tiny souls? Is, but is that the fish food that you're sprinkling in? Is it like the souls of cockroaches or something? Like just tiny souls little ones? Yeah. Dehydrated cockroach souls. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. like the astronauts eat. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the astronauts eat. Oh. <laughs> Can you, they're they're, they're, you they're collected by the, uh, by the death of cockroaches. Comes along and reaps mm-hmm. them and stuff, and then they take mm-hmm. the souls out. And that's how that that how, that's how that works. Oh, well, there's a good death cameo horrendous. in this, actually. Like there's a he sort of there's joins a couple. along. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because when Vimes is escaping, he gets as far as sleeps gone. He gets into the boat, but because he pauses in the barn and sets a trap for the werewolves, double he tries to set them on fire. Yeah, double trap. Yeah, it's a double trap because there's the fire and what's the other? There's a hole. So he wolf walks in and uncovers the piece of string across. That's to, right. like and that's the fake and that's trap. that's the yeah. decoy for him to look up and go, "I found your trap." And he goes, "No, that's the decoy." And that's when the fire explodes. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was great. It was very bad. It's very Vimes diehard stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's great. Um, but he, he gets out, he gets in the boat, he's crossing the river and he manages to get away from the wolves, unlike Sleeps, who had a wolf in the boat. Mm. They're running alongside and there's a waterfall. And the wolf says, you don't have to outrun us, but you might want to deal with the waterfall that's coming up. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And then that's when he sees death in the boat yeah. just before he goes over the waterfall. Um, but he manages to survive. Cracks a werewolf. In the head as well as there. He kills, well, he almost snaps the neck of a couple of them, but I think later in the book they go, yeah, look, that'll hurt, but they'll come back later on. Like, I don't think he kills any of them. Yeah. I, I, I was waiting for one of them to be Angua and for him to accidentally attack her while she's oh trying God. to help him. Cause we, cause we're aware of her knowing that, that her brother is chasing some poor soul and cheating at the game. Yeah. She doesn't know it's That's fine. Right. So I was, at, yeah. when he was like cracking these werewolves like against rocks and stuff, I'm like, Oh God, one of them's going to be like Angua trying to help him. Like as the paws like swiping at him. But it never was, and I was like, "Oh, okay." This, yeah, like a Deus Ex carrot, like soon. But there's also like this tiny little through line through the book as well, is that Vimes knows that he's never killed anyone on purpose, like he's Mm. never actively 
stabbed anyone to death or like snapped anyone's neck out of anger and stuff. It's always, he has killed people, but it's been in self-defense or, you know, you know, it, it couldn't be accidental. Yeah. Um, and he cracks that werewolf's head on the rock and he goes, I think he goes, Oh God, I think, I think I've killed someone. Yeah. Later on, a wolf right. goes, ah, we all get better. You, you've, you haven't slowed us down at all. But there is that thing through the book is like, you know, Vimes goes, I've, I've never gone out with the knowledge that I am about to kill someone. Mm. Yeah. And it's a pretty full on sequence too. Cause before he cracks it on the head with the rock, they're in the water and they're, you know, it's raking with his claws and he's wrestling it in the river. Mm. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's intense. Yeah. It's a really stressful sequence. I was like, when will this end? <laughs> How's it going to end? And I'd read it before and I was like, I don't remember how he gets out of this. And I thought it was like Angua rescues him, but it was not. So no, he's kind of manages it he's hunger games himself up a tree and then his friends are there yes lucky for him because otherwise he'd be stuck there and die but he's not stuck there because he does meet up with angra and carrot and gavin and the wolves yep and gaspode and gaspode Again with the gaspode erasure look i'm not <laughs> why he's do you there. hate gaspode ben i don't hate gaspode <laughs> ben's more of a foul old ron kind of character <laughs> yeah yeah. Bit of a duck fan. <laughs> yeah, big big duck fan. No. What what are you talking what, about? What duck? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're you talking make a very about. good point. Um yeah, but look at they we cut the chase a little bit here, but they go back to cut the embassy. The chase, sorry. <laughs> but Vimes is very weak, so they carry him back to the embassy. Mm. But should we quickly skip through the two, like, Agatha Christie, Denouement scenes? Like, the, there's two of those. There's the one, like, the confrontation at Angua's family home, and then there's yes. the resolution of the dwarf plot. Yeah, well, to quickly get there, they get back to the embassy and they discover that Sybil is not there. Everybody else is under house arrest, mm. but Sybil has been taken to the Von Überwald castle. And so Vimes gets everyone and says, right, we're going to rescue her. Yeah. And I love that by the time they get there, Sybil has already figured out that things are not on the level there, even though she's been told a very different story to what's really going on. And she has already escaped out the window, mm. as everyone who's ever been to a private girls' school knows how to do. <laughs> That's kind of how they explain it. Uh, but she gets the gets the bars out of the window and climbs out. Um, this is now, this is this is actually my favourite point in the book. Detritus carrying around his peacemaker. Oh, the peacemaker, which <laughs> is giant a siege giant, crossbow. Yes, a giant siege crossbow. Which instead of throwing one giant bolt, is a bundle of arrows that are tied together, and he cranks it as hard as he can. And every time he fires it, it's just disaster it's for just anyone. A shower of splinters. Yeah. The two quotes I like about. Detritus either firing or threatening to fire his crossbow. Uh, My gods, Detritus, muttered Vimes as the thunder died away. That's not a crossbow. That's a national emergency. (laughs) Yes. Yes. um, The other one is, okay, it's all wound up, said Detritus cheerfully, hoisting the humming bow into his shoulder. Where should I fire it, Mr. Vimes? Good grief, not in here. This is an enclosed building. Only until I pull this trigger. (laughs) Yes, that's right. It's just, oh, it's I just, I just imagine this quivering mass of pent up energy just ready to go. So good. And I, I like that when they get to the castle, he's pointing it at the door and Vimes says, blow the bloody doors off. Yeah. In a clear reference, I hope, to the Italian job. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, and he does it, he disintegrates the thing. And then, and then he says, do you think they heard us? <laughs> he says, I think people in Ankh-Morpork heard us. Yeah. And Sybil, who's escaped and is at the other side of the castle, is like, oh, that'll be Sam. 
<laughs> like, yeah, he arrives and there's immediately explosions. Pretty great. And this is the confrontation. So they get inside. There's a bit of back and forth. Sybil appears at the top of the stairs and is like, you lied to me, Baroness. And you never wrote back to my letters. You never replied to my letters. And she's really mean about the letters. She's like, yeah, she wrote to me every month, four pages. That's all you need to know about this woman. You're like, wow, what what an asshole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're pretty mean to her. And is this the Agatha Christie moment? I feel like that happens a little bit later. But No, it's when when they reveal all this gone stuff. That's that's the Agatha Christie moment. But this is like our Agatha Christie moment. Not... To say that it's not as good, but it's like not the same as an Agatha Christie moment, but it's reminiscent. And then there mm. is the Agatha Christie moment later when they're all in the chamber and they've sent D away to do the thing. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. like that, but yeah. Part one, part this two. is where they say, we know you've got the scone, but yeah. they also know it's the fake one that came on the coach because it's been taken. Like they couldn't search the coach when they came in because they claimed diplomatic immunity, but later on, Igor, who works for the embassy, was attacked while he was unpacking the coach. And as far as they could tell, nothing was taken. And so Vibes goes, well, if they were stealing something and everything that we know was there is still there, they must have taken something we didn't know was there, which is how he works out that yeah. it was hidden on the coach, which is which is great. It was a nice bit of, um, you know, Detecting. assumption that turns out to be correct. But it's, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was good. I, I really enjoyed it. And then, yeah, this is where they kind of demand they get the stone back. And they take it, but not immediately. Like, there's, there's this sort of horrible stuff that happens. There's a real showdown between the werewolves, and they kind of leverage the fact that they know Angua's weak point is Carrot. A Wolfgang, like, snaps his arm in half like a twig. It's, like, really awful. And it and Carrot can't handle it, even though he's super but tough. Carrot does the dumb thing where he it's the Marquis of Far... Fantailer. Fantailer. Yeah, and, like, you know, he right. squares up and he puts his dukes up, and the, and the wolf just goes, <laughs> all right, I'm just going to break your arm. Yeah. And later Vimes is like, what have I told you about the Marcus de Fan Taylor? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do not. And there's that there's that great footnote earlier on that explains who the Marcus of Fan Taylor was and why his thing is useless. It's a great callback. Also, we haven't really talked about Tantony who is like the local guard captain who initially is trying to do what he's told but doesn't really think it's right. And Vimes kind of sees in him that he's the kind of person who makes a proper watchman. He sees some watch in the local watchman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Tansony's like, you can't come in here when they get back to the embassy. You're not allowed. And But he's snuck in and he's like, well, look, you might have something to say about that outside, but in here, this is Ankh-Morpork territory and my rules go, so you can't arrest me. And he kind of basically dares him to do something about the injustice that's happening in his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then when he's back at the Uberwald Castle... Um, when Vimes is there, Tantony shows up with a bunch of the guards and he lets them through and Vimes is kind of horrified that he's actually doing what he kind of was goading him to do because <laughs> he challenges the um, the Ubervolds. He's like, I want to ask you a few questions about a conspiracy to... And she's like, you dare come here. And Wolfgang just, like, mauls him and he goes down as well. And uh, there's a big fight. Angua doesn't fight because she's too worried about Carrot. But Gavin yeah. fights sort of, him. Like foreshadowed that like she can beat up her brother early on. So I was like, when's that yeah. fight going to happen? Because mm. she, she, the reason that she's gone is that you know, Gavin has turned up to say, you know, your family's up to no good, and this is going to be real bad news for wolves because any time werewolves cause trouble, the wolves cop it. And she's like, well, I'm the only one who can do anything about this because I'm the only one who could beat him. So that's why she's heading back. And this doesn't really go well here because she's too distracted by the fact that Carrot is possibly going to die from his horrible injuries. And Gavin fights with Wolfgang. 
he's sort of getting somewhere, but Gaspode's like, that's not how you win a fight. And Gaspode leaps in and bites him on the unmentionables. And all three of them go over the edge of the drawbridge into the waterfall and down into the river. Because Gaspode never wrote, uh, read the uh, Marcus of Fantelia. No. <laughs> <And> knows <laughs> how to street not. fight. He does, yeah. yeah. You only get into a real dog fight, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And everyone's Isn't a bit shocked. Isn't that like the name of a fight in the air and they all go over the thing? Like, they're all three dogs and they go off a ledge? So yeah, a that's what fight happens. Is. Yeah. There's like, like in, a war, in World War II, like a dog fight was when you're shooting at airplanes or airplanes are shooting at each other. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's but also, shooting it's, each other, a, yeah. it's also when dogs fight each other. Wait, um, what? <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a literal dog fight. But yeah. No, we, we don't understand literal here. But yeah, oh, they they all Moriarty over the edge, and then we see who survives later. <laughs> they do. Uh, they have, they take a Rickenback fall, and afterwards there's a bit of a tense standoff. But Angua has the upper hand now because Wolfgang's not there, and she's like, "Listen, you do what I say." And they're scared of her because even though they think she's a traitor, they know that she could beat any of them in a fight. So they kind of back down a bit before her, and they get the Igor who works there to patch up Tansy and Carrot, and then they head off. We're gonna, we've got to go see the dwarfs. And they take the scone with them. Igor offers to give Carrot a few extra kidneys. If that were you, would you say yes? Yes. I think I would if they were just going. I mean, why not? Like, if, if it's not, like, taking someone off the list. Like, if they're just, hap- like, you're not getting in the way of someone else who needs them getting them. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. And if you've got three or four kidneys, it's very easy to donate one when somebody needs one, right? Mm. Yeah. And especially if I've got a couple of kidneys and someone offers me two or three more, hell yeah, <laughs> put them all in. I was like, say yes. I've been playing a lot of cyberpunk and body modifying in game. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm all up for body modifying. If there was a chance that someone could lop my arm off and give myself a brand new one, shit yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go. go. Okay. I feel like it really robbed Carrot of the opportunity to have more kidneys at that point. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this is this comes back to something that becomes a very important thing. I mean, they, the ship of Theseus analogy comes up several times in this book. Uh, mostly to do with, you know, artifacts like uh, the scone, which we'll get to, and also like the axe that the king eventually gives to Vimes. Yeah. But also it applies to people and like how many of Carrot's organs can you replace before he's not Carrot anymore? You can keep going. Well, mm. I mean, the, the Igors kind of indicate uh, that, you know, if they take the brain that maybe they'll come back again you yeah. know, another time. Yeah, it's literally just the brain. For people, it's the brain. For yeah, the scone, it's... Like, the whole thing is, like, the scone's importance is the grain of truth in the center of it, not the rest of it. So, like, it's just if you believe it's the scone, that's all that really matters. Yeah, it's a beautiful analogy, actually. And it's a beautiful story about where the scone comes from, too, which we didn't really talk about, which is, you know, they baked a a grain of truth into it, so it's always honest. Yeah, this is is not gone great. But they they go back to Bonk, to the entrance to the dwarf mines. Beyond. Sorry, Beyond. Yeah. Um, It just makes me think that, you know, Bianca is about to release a hit new single. Yeah. Or Hyacinth <laughs> lives there and she doesn't the live Dwarvish in Bianca. She lives in Bianca. <laughs> that's true. Yes, that's how she would say it. Um, but the dwarves are like, you can't come in here. Like, you're, you're not even a dwarf like, and you're a traitor and you've been, you know, there's no precedent for this. Like, someone who's accused of killing the king coming back and saying, I've brought back this important thing. And Sybil's like, yes, there is. And she sings the song from the classic yeah. dwarf opera where exactly that happens. And all the dwarfs are like, oh, yeah. And they're so impressed uh, that they let her in and come with them. And the precedent is so important that to not go with it 
is almost to say, I'm not a dwarf. Yeah. Like it's, it's ingrained in them that this has happened before. And it's almost like this procession comes after them as like people are hearing about what's going on and they've just got this huge train of dwarves just like following them into the main area. And the whispers going around, he's got the scone, he's got the Yeah, scone, yeah. But then D meets them when they get inside and it's like, you can't do this. It's not even the real Scott. And he can't say too much. He's going to give himself away. But also the crowd of dwarfs behind them, it really means that he doesn't have a leg to stand on to stop them. And mm. so they do get to see the king and D claims it's fake. But then the king's like, is it now? And gets Albrecht, who was the other contender to be the new low king, to come and taste it and see. And like Albrecht is like the most conservative. But he's also like the utmost expert on mm. scone as well. That's like, true, yeah. He's, like, if you had to ask anyone to come in and check its validity, he's the one. He's Plus, the guy, he's yeah. invested in it not being correct because it might, like, help his campaign. So, like, mm. his word yeah, yeah. is definitive. And there's that great bit where he's, like, looking at it and he looks at the others and, he, like, he chips a bit off and puts it in his mouth. And Yuck. then he, he looks <laughs> at the other. Well, I mean, it is meant to be an actual scone. Yeah, but, like, it's 50, he thinks it's 15, well, he's supposed to think it's 1,500 years old, so yuck. Yeah, but that's that's not that long for dwarf bread. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, and then there's that, that moment where he exchanges the look with Reese Reeson, and then he's like, yeah, that's no, real. And, and Vimes is like, what? This is supposed to be, how is it not all gone horribly wrong? And then they get D to put his hands on the scone, mm. because there's that. The superstition that you can't tell a lie, or if you do tell a lie while you're touching it, then it will glow red hot. And it'll burn you. Yeah. And he keeps asking D questions and is trying to lie, but eventually, you know, cracks under the pressure and starts to behave as if they are being burned by the stone and reveals that, yes, you know. But this is where Vimes sort of in private reveals that he knows what happened. They didn't steal it at all. They destroyed the stone. And just mixed up the bits of it. They smashed it into powder and then mixed that in with the sand. Yeah, D made it into that fine powder that was of the sand around the uh, mm. the dais. Yeah, which was pretty extreme because it seems like D is not in on the secret that this is not the first stone. Mm. Uh, it's gone because gone, yeah. yeah, Reese Reeson knows because some of the oldest families who've had ancestors who maybe were either low kings or very high ranking are in on the secret. Or a couple of guards who saw it get destroyed, got promoted very quickly to yeah, high rank that's right. to keep them that's quiet right. about it. That's right. Um, but it's happened many times before. And he has this big debate with Vimes about whether that means it's a real thing or not. And that's where the whole ship of Theseus thing comes in. And it's great. And uh, there's also the revelation that, you know, they're like, why did you do this? And D talks about how, you know, because of people like her and points at Cheery and, you know, they were wearing dresses and making a mockery of dwarves. And, and because because I can't. It should be noted as well that all the way through this, D every time says her in relation yeah. to Cherry, it's almost like spitting venom. Yeah. It's like it's almost like a disgust. It's it's so hard for that word to come out of D's mouth to describe yeah. Cherry. And then it turns out, you know, that and it is a bit of a trope, but you know, it mm. it kind of rings a bit true, I guess, that D is so against it because they see in Cheery someone who gets to do all the things that they can't do because they yeah. bought into the conservative point of view of, of dwarf tradition that you can't do that because, as it turns out, D is also a female dwarf. It's quite a moment. What a D plot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. You were, you were waiting. 
You're waiting for that. an hour for that. <laughs> mm. uh, but in the private audience where Vimes admits he knows that it was destroyed and they have the conversation about whether that's okay and, you know, where's the grain of truth if this is not the original scone, the king asks him what he wants as a reward and he kind of tries to come up with something. And this is where Sybil steps in and is like, fat and this is the price we want for this kind and that kind and oh no we couldn't possibly pay that much i will take this and not we want to guarantee yeah no bcbs i love that they dropped bcb a few times during the story and then it's only right at the end where vimes like saying what's a bcb and goes, burn crunchy bits <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, that's so good so clearly sybil has been reading up on the uh notes left yeah. behind by the previous ambassador you know, and she now knows back to front what needs to be done diplomatically to get what she drives a hard bargain. Yeah, because well, she's the true like, diplomat in there, and like Benary knew exactly what he was doing by sending both of them. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it was like a one-two punch. So this is the climax, but then there's still a few things that happen. They go home, back to the embassy. The coronation still hasn't happened. It's not due till the next day. And while they're waiting, Wolfgang, who has survived his fall. Um, although Gavin has not, hmm. turns up and kills the Igor who works in the embassy and confronts them and Angua and he have a big scrap and he gets away and Vimes says, I'm going to go after him. No, no, no. You look after yourself because he's he goes, found out. He goes in hot pursuit, oh, which is very right. important because someone has been murdered on Ankh-Morpork soil. Yeah, that's right. And that means that he can be a copper again. Because mm. hot pursuit means you can go over barriers or, or, or yeah, get, get into, into another it. jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you're in hot pursuit. Which they foreshadowed earlier with the clacks being like a problem with that. Yeah. 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 That's true. And, uh, and, but he's already, he's thought about this. And this is, you know, I think that there's a real line that's skirted here in that he, uh, this last action sequence, he goes after Wolf, he follows, like, the sort of trail that he's left and confronts him in, like, a town square next to a fountain. But just before he leaves, he asks for a couple of things. Yeah, he gets one of the signal flares. It's a premeditated thing that he Arrest. has decided. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he has decided he's going to do a thing. Yeah, and I think this is a bit... I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, let's say what it is for people listening. Like, he goes in... And he uses the signal flare, which they previously discussed would make a rubbish weapon, even though it's got like explosives in it, because it just, it's just, too slow. And And he's cut down the wick and he's also cut out some of the explosive and he fires it over the head of Wolf as he's charging at him. And Wolf, because he's got a bit too much of the dog in him, which Vimes has noticed what with the way he reacts to words like bath and, and things, he can't resist jumping up to grab it in his mouth. But because he's cut the wick down, it explodes and, like, it kills him. It's pretty clear because he finds out earlier that fire is no good and he's just been blown up by a massive firework in his mouth, which is pretty gross. And Vimes is fine with that. And he, but he also, you know, Tantony shows up and like they have this conversation where Vimes has said, you know, you heard me like telling me he was under arrest like several times and he resisted arrest and then he was going to attack me. And, it's very, like, I think particularly now in the climate we're in, where we're much more aware of patterns of, you know, police brutality and particularly against minorities and people of colour, it's a real unsettling moment that 
even though it's kind of justified in the plot by the fact that this is not a person, this is a horrific monster of a werewolf who has gone so bad that he will never stop killing people. And Vimes and Angua kind of accept that it's putting someone down in the same way that you would put down, you know, like a, a rabid dog. It still sits a bit not okay with me. The other option would have been for Angua to kill him, but I think that would have destroyed her humanity because her whole thing is she does not want to be the monster. She wants to be Mm. human. That's why when she takes chickens, she leaves money because that's not what wolves do, etc. So, like, I don't think there's a comfortable way to kill Wolfgang. Plot-wise, it could have been either of them. I feel like Wolfgang presents himself in this more like a horror film villain like Jason or Freddy or something like that. So like an unstoppable, because they keep on saying that you can't kill him. Like you throw, yeah. throw him down a waterfall. He's still coming back. Crack his head against the rock. He's still coming back. Like it's, it's this unstoppable killing machine and Vimes knows that it has to happen. And it's even said later on in the book that if you hadn't done it then, then he would have gone away, gotten better and, and come at you at some other point. It's a horror thing rather than being just a person. It's a, it's a it's almost like a horror trope that's coming after you that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, ideally he just wouldn't have done it through the I was trying to arrest him framework. I think would have made it a bit more comfortable. Yeah. But he did. Like I yes. agree that Wolfgang needed to die. It was just the oh I tried to arrest him, but he clearly had never planned to arrest him. He planned to kill him. If he'd done it a different way, I think no. Yeah, but that's I can looking see, at it through a lens of now. So yeah, and and yeah. and Vimes couldn't do anything in Uberwald because he was an ambassador. He could only mm. do it at that point because a crime had been committed on Ank Morpork soil, and now yeah. he was a copper in hot pursuit. And he does say, you know, I don't want to start a war. I want to try and make an arrest. And I, look, I I get where you're coming from. I think you know, twenty twenty one twenty two years ago when this was written was a very you know it was much more acceptable for the good guys to kill the bad guys in, in the fiction, particularly, you know, if the good guys were, you know, cops. Now we're a bit like, that's a bit on the nose. But, you know, when this was written, that was not, people were not thinking about yeah, that. Oh, but still, it's still back then, that sort of stuff was happening in the real world as well. Like, you well, know, that's was still, true. Yeah. yeah um, that's true. But, uh, but yeah, so that obviously the, the fact that he's a cop when he's doing it presents some problems, but I don't think yeah, it's as, look, I think, yeah. I think it's a deliberate character choice too, because while this book is sort of the start of this journey that Vimes goes on to how far he's going to go, like he gets pretty worked up in this book and he gets pretty brutal. And yeah, he has that moment where he's like, I think that's the first time I've killed someone, but he also gets pretty vicious and angry. And and this is kind of the start of that. It goes further in later books and in particularly, you know, Thud, I think is, is where you know, you see the sort of apotheosis of that kind of storyline for Vimes. But I think it's a deliberate, he's calculated this, and it is pretty much a murder, right? Like, I don't think you can, it's it's justified oh, no, it's a, it, in terms it, it of It certainly is. It's certainly a murder. He's premeditated the idea to, to murder Wolf. Yeah. But, yeah, I like I, I put it in the context that, like, you know, if you two and I were running through, uh, like, a haunted house, I would not be sad if one of you stuck an axe in Jason's head. Yeah, like yeah, fair. That's fine. That's fair. Horror rules Save apply us. in the situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the ethics are different. I think when it's like a horror scenario where he will just keep coming back, like it's like 
Yeah. yeah. I recently just rewatched all the Scream movies and yeah. Yeah, that's why it's a fantasy, you know, because in a fiction that can be true, whereas in the real world that's probably not ever necessarily true of human beings, or very, very rarely. Well, like in the real world, he should have just died in that fire trap, but no. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, yeah, or falling over the waterfall or, yeah, all manner of things, yeah. 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 But anyway, he um he does it. He has a, a bit of a face-off with Tantony, who's like, he just murdered somebody in the street, but he kind of justifies it for all the reasons that we've just talked about, and Tantony sort of sees, sees his point of view. Do they have murder in Uberboard where they have law, not law? I think they do. I, I think, like, you know, if you're a noble, if you're a vampire or a werewolf, you can go around killing people, but if you're just a person, I don't think they... If, it's not a person, he's a duke. <laughs> well, that is <laughs> that is a good point. That does fit in with the, with the way Uberbold seems to work. But look, that sort of ends that branch of the plot, and then it's time to do the sorting out of the end. So, Anger and Carrot don't go to the coronation; they go off and find Gavin's body and bury him. Um, and then they have a bit of a bit of argy bargy with Gavin's old pack, uh, where Carrot beats the the new pack leader, but then says, "But you can still be the leader." And that, and Anger's like, "That's not how it works for wolves." And wait a minute. Do you really, you know what's going on? She has that moment where she's like, I think sometimes you really do know what you're doing. It's not just luck. Um, although that does remind me that there's that bit where Vimes is looking at Carrot and is like, did you know that if you went first, you wouldn't get killed, but Gavin probably would? Did you know that? Or is just things just worked out for you because things always work out for you? And you're like, oh, that'd be kind of messed up if that was if that was true that was a bit full-on also gasbert has a lovely moment when he finds gavin's body on the side of the river and he does his best little howl mm. and stuff and then it gets picked up by all the, the wolves and stuff and and that echoes across the yeah. country i thought that was really nice yeah yeah, yeah. it's sad but so that that happens, and at the same time, we discover that Gaspo did not die. He also managed to survive his fall off the bridge. Uh, he had a bit of a brush with death. Literally. Yeah, but death did not take him, and he manages to get on a boat and make his own way back to Ankh-Morpork. Meanwhile, Vimes and Sybil and the other watch officers go to the coronation. There's hours and hours of dwarf ritual and opera, and then the Low King is crowned and insists on seeing Vimes and the others and gives them presents. It's said right at the start they don't mind silver in Uberfold. It's been outlawed for obvious reasons. The werewolves won't allow it. But the king has decided to reopen the silver mines and give Sybil a ring made out of the first silver mine out of the mine, um, yeah. which is pretty awesome. Very Wagnerian, <laughs> which seems appropriate for Sybil. And gives Vimes an axe, which again is a, a reference to like you, you might have to replace bits of it, but it will one day become somebody's grandfather's grandfather's axe. And gives Cheery a reward. It ends up being a, a bag of gold, but while giving it to her, asks for her dressmaker's details because yeah. the king might have some business for that dressmaker later on down the line, which they all kind of rather shocked go, did the king just say that they're a woman? And uh, it was, yeah, that was kind of a But it's only sort of among the Ankh-Morpian attaché sort of group. Yeah, it doesn't They're the only ones who sort of get that. Like the the Mm. other dwarfs don't don't really hear that. Yeah. Mm. And, of course, nobody cares if the king is a woman. What they care about is is the king going to start start doing 
feminine human things. So yeah, that, but that was kind of a cool moment. I, I did like that. Hmm. Um, Vimes recruits a new Igor and finally. Oh, oh no, no, no. But then Detritus yeah. gets a bag of gold. And the big oh, thing right. is that oh, yeah. he, the king shakes hands with Cheery and Detritus and like in a fell swoop just does away with like yeah, yeah, hundreds yeah, yeah. and hundreds of years of troubles. You're not supposed to touch a king. She's the king now. And the king has reached out and touched two people straight off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's a huge thing. I'd forgotten that. They head off. And as they leaving, Cheery's like, wait, did, did the king just say what I think? And then they are all sort of sitting there thinking about the importance of that. And Sybil to break the silence kind of says, Cheery, that was nice of you after D confessed that you said, you know, you went off to comfort her. And, Cheery's like, yeah, and also I got her to tell me who all her accomplices were. <laughs> like, yeah, go Cheery. That was so cool. And it's like all these important dwarves back in Ankh-Morpork. It was awesome. Because she, she's basically Vimes' best investigator. Mm, yeah, and, true. And she went, you know what? I'm going to help her because she's going through a bad time. But also... Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to do a bit mm. of investigating. Amazing. And then it's time to go home, except... Vimes has finally got the message from Sybil that she's Prangent. It's took it took a while. Yeah, there's the baby. There's a scone in the oven, and <laughs> uh, it's it's gonna happen. And so he said he he recruits this young Igor, who's the nephew of sort of of the one who was working at the embassy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a few funny ideas for an Igor, like he's growing ears on the back of a rabbit and he's yeah. he's doing a few other weird and, things. And he's got an unfortunate speech impediment, which means he oh, speaks yeah. almost perfectly. <laughs> yeah, that was so good. Uh, and he won't say, he won't call any man master. And Vimes is like, this is the Igor for me. <laughs> you come back with me to Ankh-Morpork, Pork. You can work in the watch. But he sends everybody else back and decides that he and Sybil are going to take a nice slow route back. He's going to take a week off because now he can see that there's something in his future other than just being commander of the watch. He's going to have a child and he's got to start thinking about life a bit differently. So he he decides he's going to take a week off and they take the scenic route home. Yeah. And then the last thing that happens is Carrot gets home back to Ankh-Morpork and finds that Colin has locked himself alone in the watch house. (laughs) Won't let anybody come in. And so he just goes in and gives him a classic dressing down, like sergeant, drill sergeant style, yeah. and sets him right and sends him off to recruit all of the watchmen who quit <laughs> because he drove them <laughs> nuts while he was away. And I also like that, that the one other bit of that subplot that we haven't talked about is that Vetinari does show up because um, uh, Nobby has enough of this and forms a guild and puts all the watchmen on strike. And Vetinari drives his coach past and talks to Nobby and is like, okay, Carry on. And uh, Drumknot, his aide, is like, shouldn't you do something? Like, the watch aren't doing anything. And he's like, no, 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 this is great. Like, every criminal in the city is scared to do anything because they know if they do anything while Vimes is away and this nonsense is going on, Vimes is going to come down on them so hard. Yeah. (laughs) And so, the criminal activity is, like, just dropped, even though there's no watch to look after it. This is a very weird situation. Yeah, it's um, it's like the entire criminal element takes a holiday while Vimes is taking a holiday. Yeah, they're like, because if he finds out we did stuff while well, he wasn't here. Yeah. It's like how in Buffy all the vampires never do anything on Halloween because it's tacky. Yeah. It's tacky <laughs> to do crime when Vimes isn't there. When there's no watch there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and that's the end of the book. I haven't read this since I first read it, so not probably for about 20 years. And I loved it. I thought maybe it didn't need to be quite as long as it was, 
Like, I was never bored reading it, but I also did think, like, it's a fairly straightforward plot with some great, like, complications, but it's not, Mm. like, yeah. So, I I thought maybe it was a little long, but that is really the only negative thing I have to say about this book. And maybe the the carrot subplot was maybe unnecessary. But apart from that, wow, what a great book. What a great- Great crime mystery. Yeah. 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 It's Uh, got a very satisfying conclusion and and everything. And it's got my favourite little thing- in any sort of mysteries, it starts off with a tiny little crime that has nothing to do with what the main plot's going to be, but it does, it does, <laughs> and, so, and like it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoy that. And even though there's no reason to put a tiny little crime in that isn't going to be to do with anything, of course it's going to be to do with stuff. I like that little trope where I go, "Ooh, how is it going to connect? Like, how is a simple break and enter meant to do with the the crowning of a new king?" In another land, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, the criminals being in the room with them is always, like, a good creepy element. Yeah. Like, while they're at the bread museum, yeah. they were right there. Yeah. Also, yeah. also that, that, that start of that as well, when Vimes and, I think, Red Shoe, they're talking about clues uh, and how clues just get in the way sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Which is a repeating theme. Like, Vimes is very disdainful of clues. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. Uh, look, I think I think we've probably covered most of them along the way, but are there any favourite bits anyone wants to get out before we get on to listener questions? I'll just blitz through. I love um, detritus describing cocktails as stories about chickens. Yep. Um, that was genius. <laughs> that was very funny, yes. And my other one is when he's really pleased about being taken on as cultural attaché and so he like really like goes to the ball and is like, I'm going to tell some people about culture. And there's like the cultural attache of Genua has been buttonholed to hear like him talking about art. And he's just like, what is it? Yes, to the cultural attache in a stunned voice. And I must say, I'm particularly interested in visiting the art gallery and seeing, he shuddered, and then there's quote marks, this picture of this woman, I don't reckon the artist knew how to do a smile properly, but the frame's got to be worth a bob or two. It sounds like the experience of a lifetime. Good evening to you too. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And um yeah, Le- Leonard Decorum's Enigma machine, which they never call Enigma, but it's got the all the letters without making it an acronym. Yeah, that's And also right. that bit in the same bit where um he makes the very fast coffee machine. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and they hide behind the off. table yeah. as yeah, it goes so off. Yeah, so he's basically they hide behind the table <laughs> while they make an explosive espresso. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed a lot of the terrible horror movie illusions. There's a great one right at the end where the new Igor has not only got the rabbit, whose name is Eerie. Yeah. That's um, <laughs> growing human ears on its back. A reference to a real world science thing that was happening around that time. But also he's got a box with stuff moving around it. And Vime says, have you got a dog as well? And he goes, uh, no, sir, those are my tomatoes. And it's very clearly a little reference to the attack of the killer tomatoes, <laughs> which I rather liked. Yeah, there's lots of great bits. I really also liked a lot of the lore that comes out in this book. Yeah. Um, the story when uh, of the Knocker Men and, and some of the, the really traditional parts of dwarf culture, I really enjoyed that stuff. And because you get it through Cheery, who's talking about not just this is what dwarves are like, but and this is how it happened in my family. And my cousin went off to be a Knocker Man and, you know, he got yeah, blown that's up right. in some mine a, a far away from home. And, you know, this is like, that was really cool. I really loved that Yeah, it stuff. had a real hurt locker feel to it. Like, you know, these people all getting dressed up in heavy leathers and going down and knowing that at any moment it, there could be a massive backdraft and they get exploded. 
Yeah. And people choosing to still do that, even though like a simple mesh can do the job. Yeah, that's right. Because it's calling. Yeah. Yeah. I will read out one because there's one good, there's, I mean, there's lots of good eagle jokes, but there's one that's kind of, he's done various riffs on this, Pratchett, in the various uh, Igor appearances. But there's one where Igor says, he's got his grandfather's hand, you know. I could see the scars, said Vimes. Lucky little devil, they should have been mine by rights, but he was old enough to go into the lottery. <laughs> and I was like, he's done a variation on that joke so many times, but that was my favourite one, I think. It just really landed yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. As always, there's like a billion amazing things in here. It was it was great. I really loved it. But we should get on to questions because we got some great ones. All right. Yeah, and I don't think we're able to get through all of them, but we'll do our best. So the first question comes from Joel via Discord. Were you surprised by Cheery using her time with D to suss out names? I mean, I didn't remember it, and I I I was a bit surprised. I was not surprised at all. I thought no. I thought she was obviously quite empathetic to what D was going through. You know, in that reveal, but also when Chiri came back with her names, I've gone. Of course, I'm not surprised that Chiri did that. She's she's a copper first and foremost. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think taken aback is perhaps more for me. Then I'm like, no, wait, this is entirely in her character. So yeah, it came as yeah. a plot surprise, but not a character surprise. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's true for me too. And I um I think it was partly because I just thought, oh, that'll just happen off screen. And then, mm. and then, mm. and then it was Cheery who did it, and everyone was like, "Way to go, Cheery!" I'm like, "This is such a lovely little character moment. This is great." So yeah, I, I was surprised, but not because I thought Cheery would never do that. Yeah, mm. um, we've got some great ones from Machu and Sneeze. We won't be able to get through all of them, but we might put some of them online. First of all, the three sisters in the woods is that a reference to a specific book or just a general nod to turn of the century Russian literature? And I think we covered that a little bit, like it was like the rapid fire Chekhov sequence. Yeah, well, it's it it is a, it's a reference to at least three Chekhov plays, uh, because we get um we get the the ladies talk about having a cherry orchard, so that's obviously the cherry mm-hmm. orchard. Um, also one of his famous plays is uh, Three Sisters, so you know they're the three sisters, and then one of his other plays is called Uncle Vanya, which is that the coffin is, one. You know, um, I well, a traditional Russian story, you know, where like he's like visiting his friend's grave and then he gets pulled into the grave and the friend's like drink a vodka with me and does it in like 50 years passes and he's like an old like he comes out the same age but everyone else is old i'm not sure the moral is but i guess it's like don't go into your friend's grave and drink vodka with them you know i don't remember that that sounds like <laughs> i mean it sounds like something that would happen in a russian play um right, but we've got a very important question also from a chew and sneeze who's eating fred's okay. sugar now i did want to know this because i could not and i think pratchett's very clever to not spell this out but it's not clear if it's all in fred's mind or if some of the sugar cubes are actually going missing no no no, it's fred but you think it's fred i mean he does eat them there's, yeah yeah there's a there's a bit where he is sitting at the desk absent-mindedly munching on a sugar cube oh and you think it, that's that's all it is is that he's done that without really clocking it and then when he's counted yeah. them again it's like there's fewer of them i mean no, he's also handling them too much like so that some would be dissolving like disintegrating oh, that's true and also, yeah. there's the fact, to, as Nobby points out, that Fred's not exactly a maths whiz. So even also, he loves a having a funky. having a cup of tea, and, and like you know, surely he put some sugar cubes into his tea. That's true. Mm-hmm. True. So yeah, I think I think you're probably right. I think Fred is Fred is stealing from himself. Yes, yeah, Fred. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's Swires really fucking with him. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> just. I can imagine well, the him doing that once the coming in. started, you know, sneaking back in. <laughs> yeah. 
I can absolutely see him like laying them out on the desk and a little bit in a puddle of water and one dissolving when he's not noticing as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, locked moon um, mystery. There's just yeah. there's just a puddle of water and no sugar cube. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah, um, I think we can fit in one more from a chew and sneeze. Um, so Vimes mentions that dwarfish is such a good language to be annoyed in. Do any other good languages come to mind? Dutch and Portuguese have always struck me as good languages in which to be vexed. I would like to say Cantonese. Um, oh, yeah. Part of me is because like I speak it, but it is a nine-tone monosyllabic language, and it can sound quite angry if you don't understand. It. Like Mandarin sounds angrier, but like there's more tones in which to sound rapid fire and irritated in Cantonese. I think. Uh-huh. Is it Cantonese or Mandarin that they speak in Firefly, where they have they mix That's in Mandarin. some Chinese? That's Mandarin. I think it's Mandarin. I, it's been a couple of years since I watched it, but I'm pretty sure they, it's they have Mandarin. some pretty good swears in that. They have good. They have good swears, but it's still quite lilting mm. for me. Like it's not. I don't feel like you're angry. I feel like I. I get the gist. You've probably said something rude. Yeah. Okay. But it's not particularly angry. <laughs> what about you, Richard? Do you have a language you you think is good for being annoyed? Oh, look, I like you. I I only speak English, and um, and I, I I couldn't speak to anyone else. But like, I reckon I probably wouldn't want to have a Wookie being angry at me. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that would be you would instantly know that you've done something wrong. Yeah, fair. I look. I I think German is quite good, and I no offense to any of our, our German listeners. I know we've got at least a few, but I think like if you're shouting in German, that's a good shouting language. But also, if you really want to be annoyed, just English, <laughs> just certain English accents, like a very upper class English accent, is a good one to be annoyed in. Uh. Yeah, I think that's good. And Klingon. Do you remember that sequence in The Simpsons where Lisa catches a bus and she finds herself in Little Russia and the people are all trying to help her and she she gets really scared and thinks they're yelling at her, but they're like, little girl, how can we help you? I'd absolutely, like, would you like some lunch? But, but it all sounds like they're yelling at her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, mm. I've, yeah I've certainly been in, in situations where people have been telling me stuff, which I'm sure they've been trying to help me. Like especially in Thailand, like I, I was in a situation where I was the only English speaker in this particular village you I was staying. Didn't in. get that job. <laughs> He'll never tell. I'll never tell. <laughs> um, so the next question comes from Louise by Discord. So I'm so happy this book carries on the Discord tradition of animals having absolutely daft names, like you bastard the camel. So with the wolves named Gavin, awkward and arsehole slash bun. So what do you think your own wolf name would be? So I guess that's like, what's a summary of you as a wolf? They're almost like deed names, like the names that you get given for something you do. Because there's another one called Eats Wrong Meat who who shows up towards the end of the book. Uh, he's one of the, I think, I can't remember he's the one who takes over from Gavin as the leader of the yes. pack, but he's one of them. Yeah. Um. So I feel like, I feel like we shouldn't choose our own. Like, I feel like we should give one to each other. Oh, okay, cool. Ooh, okay. So we're trying to do a round robin? Yeah. I- I'm happy what? to go first. I'm going to give one to you, Liz. Okay. <laughs> I think you are um, makes many puns. I'll accept that. Or many puns. Mm. Or perhaps a word that is a pun, but I haven't quite figured out what that would be. <laughs> a wolf pun. Wolf pun instead of Wolfgang. No, that doesn't really work. Anyway, you, you know mm. what I mean. I think you get where I'm coming from. I feel like... Mm. Yeah, or punny, or play on play on is words. Is she for real? <laughs> Maybe you'd just be called Pune, <laughs> as it is spelt in the books. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I think your wolf name would be. Mm. So I guess I'm I'm doing Richard's one. 
Oh, sure. Okay. I mean, there's so many things that like stand out about you, but I mean, I guess, I mean, we've already talked about how Magic the Gathering makes me think of you. So let's go in a different direction. Smokes the good meats. Smokes good meats. I'm, yeah, I'm mm, down. You've got to be happy with I'm that. I'm down. Yeah. And I think that is a very good wolf name too. Smokes good meats. Good yes. Yes. I am mm. totally down with that name. Can mm-hmm. I very good. Gonna change my Twitter handle? <laughs> <laughs> Um, All right, well, so, now you, so Benjamin, you got to do me. Uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, we've worked together for so long in so many different settings. I know. Um, oh, what, what, what's a good wolf name? Yeah. Um, oh, well, look. To be honest, this and this is just from going off of the dynamic of you and I in a <laughs> lot of the sketches and a lot of the shows we've done. Yes. Uh, it's short and sweet. You would just be smart one. <laughs> I love uh, it. Because, uh, I, because I have no illusion of the role that I play when we do duo stuff. It's true. I am the large, tattooed, lumbering idiot, and you are the smart one. Smart one, who's also a bit annoyed. <laughs> that is our usual dynamic. That's yes, true. Yes, yeah. Smart, annoyed one. Okay, I'll pay that. I will, I'll take that. I mean, because mm. also, you know, it is a name that you have in your pack, so it has to respond to what other people say. I do. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just give a shout out, Liz, though, because one of our other um, supporters on Discord, Emma, had a great answer for this uh, and said that their wolf name would be Thinks Too Much, which I can certainly identify with. <laughs> yeah, very relatable. It's a great one. Too relatable. Uh, yeah. Over apologizes, you know, something like that. Let's try and get a few more in. As you may have noticed, we had a few technical difficulties with our recording this episode. So some of these answers are from our backup recording. The quality, unfortunately, is not great, so we've had to leave a few questions out, but we'll try and clean a few up and include them on our website or a future episode of The Oak Club. So the next two come from Sven by Discord. I'll say them both so we can answer them together. So since this book is quite obviously a vampire slash werewolf romance thing, totally in the Twilight craze, which two characters do you ship in your head canon? And since in this book another of Terry's jokes became real and came to life, the dwarfs, which characters do you think be- does the most exposure for us, the readers? Hmm. Okay. Well, look. Uh, let's. I mean, let's just say the obviously. I think this this predates Twilight, and also mm. none of the vampires are getting it on with any werewolves. But I do. I take what you mean there, Sven. Um, mm. Who do Who do you ship? That is a good question. Well, I think there's always that underlying thing that Margalotta and Vetinari. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. like they know each other. And like they've taught each other each everything that they know. Like I would actually like to see that coupling, mm-hmm. like become the real power couple of either Ankh-Morpork or Uverwild, mm. or both, or both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could rule the whole disc together. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I look. I I was gonna say Cheery and Detritus, but I don't know if I really think that. If I but if I just think that would be cute. <laughs> I don't know if I really want it to happen. I don't think I want it to happen, but I think it would be cute because it's that classic buddy cops become partners, become romantic partners kind of deal. They could be like, uh, you'd be like those two characters on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like Jake and, mm. and um, what's her name? Jake and Amy. Jake and Amy. How about you, Liz? You gotta- well, I guess like I'm going to have to go with the obvious one, which is um, replica scone powder and cave sand. <laughs> The obvious one. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> but is that really, is, are you shipping that? Because, like, that happens 
in the... It's true. They're together forever that, now. That's actual canon. What's They're, in your um, head canon? I think my real one would be... If I can't, like, because Margulotter and Veterinary, I'm very behind that. Um, but second choice, I think maybe Cheery and New Igor. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a bit young for her. As they, as they branch out into into their new CSI TV show. Hmm. Yeah. Has okay. Blow burn simmering tension across several seasons. And they're they're both nerds. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm. You've sold me now. I'm and easy. then Igor can literally give his heart to her. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's my heart in a box. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. okay. I can SNL skit out of it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is great. Just for the second question, um, I think I'd have to go for vampires. I think were given a, a different dimension in this one for me. So, like Lady Margaret is very different kind of vampire to what we've seen previously. So, mm-hmm. I think having her as a character like that gave more exposure to me. If I've understood the question correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think also, you know, which ones do we want? Because it was Fenn's talking about how, you know, this book is really where dwarf culture becomes more three-dimensional, whereas previously it was all just jokes about them singing gold all the time, whereas now, you know, it feels a bit more real, while still incorporating the gold singing, <laughs> which I'm very happy about, because you should always believe in your soul. But I think the story that Cheery tells, like that, like I was saying, you know, the stuff about the deep-down dwarves and the knocker men and all that stuff, I really... I think that's what really sold it for me because that was a personal story as well. And so I think, I think it's those bits where, particularly when Cheery talks about it, because we've heard Carrot talk about being a dwarf before, but he's from Copperhead. So, you know, it's a bit different for him. His, his family were not as traditional. Um, and hearing Cheery talk about it when she's not accepted by a lot of traditional dwarves. Yeah. I felt that added mm. such a great extra dimension to it. Um, and the character of D as well. There's some pretty clear real world kind of analogies for D. You know, and like I said before, I kind of a bit of a bit tropey and perhaps, you know, in the wrong hands in in a more real world kind of scenario would be a bit problematic, but I think in this setting works very well. Mm. So the last question is from Joel by Discord. Do you have any item of clothing in your wardrobe that you would give such a fanciful name as Uncle Vanya's gloomy and purposeless pants? Um, so there's a response from Lachlan on Discord, which was they sound like a Dungeons and Dragons artifact waiting to happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's interesting because uh, like uh my cat just today uh listeners i have a, I have a cat now my partner's cat now lives with me so i i have a cat i don't think i've talked about him on the podcast before so there you go there's now three pratchett cats his name's chaos and he um it, it suits him um he ran away for a few days right at the start of the year and caused us a lot of stress so we we um, put a collar on him and he didn't seem bothered by it but this morning he turned up and the collar was gone and so we've been looking for it. And while we were looking for it, I realized that what I was looking for was the collar of chaos. And that just struck yes. me as both uh, like a fanciful name for a piece of clothing, but also absolutely a Dungeons and Dragons artifact that has some terrible powers that I am most likely going to write up at some point. <laughs> so that would be mine, I think. I would say mine is um, I found a shirt years ago that I love. <laughs> Yeah, And anyone who knows me knows I've been wearing pretty much the same shirt for a million years. Yep. So I would have Richard's Everlasting Flannel. <laughs> <laughs> I have a red and black checked flannel that I fucking love. And yeah. look, I put on a bit of weight and it doesn't look great on me now, but I refuse to put it in the bin. Like I'm going <laughs> to lose the weight because it's Richard's Everlasting Flannel. 
<laughs> well, what about you, Liz? Do you have one? I don't have just one. I name most of my clothes and they all have, like, I don't usually say them out loud. Um, often I sew my own clothes, so I kind of mentally name them, like, that's the Untouchables dress because I was watching the Untouchables while I made it. <laughs> or, like... You whisper you know. it into the seam as you're putting it together. <laughs> yes, just like, and then I'll eat poisoned mushrooms and it's great. There's, um, a, there's a grain of truth inside every one of those <laughs> garments that you've made. But yeah, um, they're all kind of like, I've got subconscious names for them because I have like clothes that I wear regularly. So like, it's not like a jumper I wear where, when I'm depressed, but it looks like the kind of jumper you'd wear when you are depressed. So there's one that is called like the depression jumper or the jumper of sadness, which is kind of like the <laughs> Uncle Vanya pants. It's like a big quicksilver hoodie that's way too big for me. And like, it's like longer, like, like it's almost like a dress. Um, there's the, the wallpaper dress. There's the asylum outfit. Um, is the wallpaper dress the one like you wear when you don't want to go dancing and you just want to sit on the sidelines and just have a chat? Yeah, it's got like long sleeves and a high collar and like it's got a hazy print, so it's like a dramatic wallpaper, but not like one that would stand out. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, there's like there's the the boat dress. I don't know. This is just one for everything. Everything's got That's like amazing. a situation or a story. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to think if there's like a best one. I'm just trying to think, what do I wear? I mean, it's been a year of being in home clothes. So yeah, what is why well, I. I have this blue, you just made me think of one. I have this blue coat that I bought when I went on my one and only trip to the UK about 10 years ago. And I love it. I still own it. I still wear it. But I also now wear it. It's kind of become a uniform for me when I do a particular creative writing workshop for kids where I'm, I'm we do a story about going into outer space. So I now think of it as my space command uniform. <laughs> so that's, that's, a, that's a fairly fanciful name for a piece of clothing. Oh, I think my best one is my, does this look like I'm selling Bibles pinafore? (laughs) (laughs) Which you've never seen because the answer is yes. Oh no. Okay. Well, I don't think, I don't think we can top that. I think that's going to be the end of our (laughs) questions, which means we're at the end of the podcast. Richard, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. Have you? Yeah. I love this. Oh, it's so fun. Now that things are starting to get a little bit more normal, normal here in Melbourne, you are getting back to running trivia nights now. That is very correct. I, uh, oh, they're so good. They are very good. If you want to hear me uh, hosting trivia and basically just mucking around for two hours, having a drink and having some fun, I'm down at the Cornish Arms on Sunday afternoons in Sydney Road in Brunswick and on Tuesday nights at Burnley Brewing. Uh, kicking off at 7.30 there. Um, yeah, just uh, having a great time, living my best life. We'll put uh, those details about your uh, trivia nights in the show notes. So if any of you are in Melbourne and you want to come along and uh, get asked some questions by Richard, you absolutely should. It is a fun time. And every now and then when Richard goes on holiday, there's another Mackenzie who pops up to It's fill my in. brother from another mother, Benjamin Mackenzie, comes in and yeah. hosts in for me. It's really quite fun. And I think we said this last time you were on, but if you do go along, make sure you make a Terry Pratchett-related team name so that Richard knows that's how you heard about it. Oh, yeah. If you make a Terry Pratchett-themed name, you'll probably get some free beer. There you mm-hmm. go. You heard it here. And, but, but you have to quaff it, and I'll only know if your ears are wet. <laughs> <laughs> no lids allowed. That's right.
Very good. Look, uh, we also want to thank all of you listening. Thank you so much. There's no point in us doing this unless there are people listening. And an extra special thank you to everyone who goes out of their way to support the podcast, whether that's uh, monetarily through our optional subscription, where you can get access to our subscriber-only bonus podcast, The Oot Club, a new episode of which we are going to make soon. I'm saying it on the podcast, so we made the time to do it, but we've got some great questions for that. Um, it's mm. where we, it's where we traditionally answer questions that are Pratchett related, but not about a specific book. So if you've got any questions like that that you really want to ask us, why not check out our support details on our webpage? You can support us for as little as two bucks a month. It's very cheap. Two dollars Australian even. So what's that in ain't more pork dollars? Probably like 50 cents or something. Who knows? You can support us just by telling people who like Terry Pratchett. And also, if you want, give us a review or a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. They will help people find the podcast. Um, and uh, I just want to give a plug out to you, Liz, because I bought the book that your short story is in. I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited to. Um, Collisions. Thank you so much for buying that. That's that's awesome. No, I'm excited to read that and all the other stories too because I've heard um, really good things about it. So, yeah, Collisions, it's a short story collection published by Liminal Magazine. Did I mm. get the name of the magazine right? Um, so, yeah, it's a, and it's a great little collection of uh, some cool stories. We will be back again next month and we're going to take a little break from the Discworld to go to one of Perry Pratchett's other novels. And, in fact, we're going to read one of his standalone novels. Nation. Yes. I've not read yet, so I'm excited. No, me either, but I've heard some amazing things about it, not least from our guest who'll be joining us, educator Charlotte Pizarro, who's going to be phoning in from uh, up in Queensland. I'm very excited to hear what she's got to say about it and to read it. If you've got any questions about the novel Nation, you can send them in to us on social media using the hashtag Pratchat41, or you can shoot us an email at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. But until next time, if a dwarf offers you a scone, remember no amount of jam or cream will make it edible. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Richard McKenzie. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat40. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.